Surviving Bob Jones University of Christian Cults is a thought-provoking podcast series that delves deeply into the history of Bob Jones University, the psychology of fundamentalism, the criteria for cults, and survivors' experiences. BJU is a controversial religious institution, and this podcast sheds light on the experiences of those who have survived this high-control environment. Please subscribe to stay updated on the premiere of this podcast, which is coming in 2023. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I know what some of you are probably thinking right about now. Not another episode on Doug Wilson, but hang on a minute. If you recall, I've been threatening to release this episode for a long time now. After I've mentioned it, along with some of my other shows I did on him, I think I'm up to six or seven episodes now. I did receive several responses from listeners, and they were asking me, hey, please go ahead and put this one together. And I'm just going to warn you right now, this is going to be another long two-plus-hour episode. However, there's some good news. For those of you that are history geeks, you're going to enjoy this because I'm doing a lot of historical background before we get into Wilson and Wilkins' book, Southern Slavery as it was, and then later I'll talk about Wilson's Black and Tan. So without further ado, here it is. Let's go looking at Doug Wilson's Southern Slavery as it was and the Theological War Thesis. Now, I first came across this concept of the Theological War Thesis, it was a few years ago, But actually, it wasn't in connection with any of my work on Doug Wilson and his views on slavery. Now, I'm just going to put a shameless plug in here. If you haven't listened to my now, I think it's six or seven episodes on Wilson in which I did a very deep dive, long form investigation into his sprawling religious cult-like empire. Okay, you've got a couple of options if you want to catch those episodes. You can, first of all, you can search for Mindshift Podcast on Spotify And there you'll find a playlist that I created, and I put all the episodes into one place, and it's called Investigating Doug Wilson's Empire, or the other option, you can go to my YouTube channel, and I've got the same playlist, but that also includes a couple of recent ones I did with Chris Shelton, for example, on his Sensibly Speaking podcast. We talked about Doug Wilson's cult-like sort of Christ Church in Moscow. We talked about his malign influence on evangelicalism and Christian homeschooling. And I've also added in there one that I did with David Johnson on his Skeptics and Seekers podcast. We took about a two-hour deep dive. We listened to an entire Doug Wilson sermon, and we analyzed it. We broke it down. So those are all in that playlist on YouTube, and I'm going to add this one in as well. But as I say, it wasn't my research into Wilson where I came across the concept of the theological war thesis. Instead, it was out of my work on Dominion Theology and specifically R.J. Rush Dooney, who is, of course, the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. And I'd read his 1973 work, The Institutes of Biblical Law, which is a massive, over it's a, over 1,000 pages commentary on the Ten Commandments. I'd come across a couple of references to slavery 
in the Old Testament in that book, essentially what amounted to what seemed to be like a defense of the practice or explaining it away. He also had some things to say about black people, which were somewhat disturbing to say the least. But what I didn't realize then until I read the following article I'll talk about in a minute was the extent to which Rush Dooney and others borrowed from the work of 19th century Southern Christian slave apologists to construct his theological system, which was Christian Reconstructionism. Investigative journalist and author Catherine Stewart, I've had her on the show a number of times. She spells it all out in a 2020 History News Network article on R.J. Rush Dooney in terms of how he formed the basis of the system that would end up becoming Christian Reconstructionism Catherine Stewart notes that, quote, there is little mystery about the historical sources from which Rush Dooney drew his own inspiration. He laid out all the details in his works, setting aside the hardline Dutch Reformed theologians who supplied the backbone of his thought. Rush Dooney drew on two traditions that would prove essential in understanding the genesis of today's Christian nationalist movement. The first was the pro-slavery theology of America's antebellum preachers, the second was the economic libertarianism that took root in reaction to the New Deal, end quote. We'll delve more into that history. We're going to talk about Rush Dooney and all that a little bit later in the episode, but it's worth asking the question right now before we go forward, to what extent are Doug Wilson and his co-author Stephen Wilkins in their 1996 book, Southern Slavery As It Was, how much are these two guys indebted to the work of Rush Dooney and others, especially as it relates to this issue of basically defending southern slave owning from the bible i've already shown in my first episode on wilson that he's a very clever adherent of at least certain elements of christian reconstructionism he does admit to desiring for example a softer gentler version of christian reconstructionism kind of like christian reconstructionism 2.0 or something like that i can't remember exactly what he said but moreover christ church's efforts to christianize the town of moscow idaho would seem in some part to fit into that strategy of Christians taking dominion. Now, the article that first drew my attention to the subject I mentioned a minute ago was written by two Canadian scholars, Edward H. Sebasta and Ewan Haig, and I'm going to be quoting from that throughout this episode. It's entitled, quote, The U.S. Civil War as a Theological War, Confederate Christian Nationalism, and the League of the South, end quote. It was published back in 2002 in the Canadian Review of American Studies. In addition to this hopeful article, which kind of started me off, I've added a lot more research. I've gone into Wilson and Wilkins's book in more detail, which we'll see later on, as well as looking in more depth at the historical context around Southern slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. In the case of Southern slavery as it was, there were two issues that arose almost immediately and then a few years later after the book came out. And I'll talk about this later on as well. First, it was found that they were guilty of numerous instances of plagiarism. And then second, real historians who were experts on the period of antebellum slavery took issue with the historical veracity of the book. Thus, in light of these issues, Wilson's own publisher, Canon Press, took the unprecedented step of pulling the book from the shelves. This was a drastic step, but of course, that wasn't the end of the story. After the book was taken off the shelves, Wilson ditched Stephen Wilkins as his co-author, he blamed him for the plagiarism, he revamped his work, and then rebranded it. Released in 2005, it's now called Black and Tan, a collection of essays and excursions on slavery, culture war, and scripture in America. I'm going to come back to this later on, but it's going to be interesting to ask whether or not Wilson has actually retracted anything from Southern slavery as it was, or 
Is he guilty of, as Dr. Nick Geyer calls, he was his professor back at the University of Idaho, he calls Doug Wilson a master of sophistry. We're going to take a little bit more in-depth look at the book later. Then at the end of the episode, I want to do a little bit of an overview. I want to answer some of Wilson's current objections after Black and Tan came out, that he is in fact not a racist, and that he carefully dances around the issue of whether or not he's actually retracted anything from Southern slavery as it was. But of course, more on that later. Let's take a look at the theological war thesis. A recent episode of Dan Carlin's excellent podcast, Hardcore History, which I highly recommend, it's called Human Resources. And this is what really got me more interested in the topic of slavery, especially since when I listened to it, I'd already come across Southern Slavery as it was by Wilson and Wilkins. I'd already read that book, which is only about, I think it's 28, 30 pages. It's a small little book, but Dan Carlin's episode focused mainly on the transatlantic slave trade. If you haven't listened to it yet, you really owe yourself uh, to do yourself a favor. Download that episode while you still can, because it's an in-depth look at the horrors, the economics, as well as the justifications for the slave trade at the time. And Dan Carlin does a really good job. He goes into depth about the institution of slavery overall. He goes back and lays it out in human history. Now, although he speaks of slavery as something that's far from unique historically, and we know, for example, that many ancient cultures practiced slavery, the Greeks, the Romans, and others, much of the episode that he did is devoted to slavery in the American context. So after listening to that podcast by Dan Carlin, I wanted to hear more from the mouths of those individuals who'd actually lived during the Southern slavery period and they'd experienced its brutalities firsthand. I found three books that offer up autobiographical accounts of what it was like to be a slave in the South in the 19th century. The first one was Frederick Douglass's Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. The second one is called 30 Years a Slave from Bondage to Freedom by Lewis Hughes. And finally, the third one is 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup, which of course was made into a movie in 2013 based on his book. Incidentally, all three of these books are available for free. You can find them as audiobooks on Spotify. They're in the public domain online as PDFs too. I highly recommend reading each one. And I'd also recommend, I would highly endorse Raoul Peck's excellent documentary series. It's entitled Exterminate All the Brutes. Now, what Raoul Peck does, he takes an absolutely unflinching look at not just the institution of modern slavery, racism, he also connects it to things like religion, systemic racism, European colonialism, American exceptionalism, expansionism, and more. It's a fantastic series. Now, I'm going to return to the accounts of some of these former slaves later on and specifically focus on their impressions of Christian slave owners, masters, and overseers. In fact, let's get a preview of this. As Douglas states in his book, he says, quote, were I to be again reduced to the chains of slavery, Next to that enslavement, I should regard being the slave of a religious master the greatest calamity that could befall me. For of all slaveholders whom I have ever met, religious slaveholders were the worst. I have ever found the meanest and basest, the most cruel and cowardly of all others. It was my unhappy lot not only to belong to a religious slaveholder, but to live in a community of such religionists." End quote. Douglas and Hughes, who of course were both former slaves, note that of all the owners they worked for or knew about or heard about, it was the Christian ones who were by far the cruelest and most vicious in their treatment of slaves. In fact, Douglas is careful to distinguish 
between Christianity and what he calls the, quote, slaveholding religion in this land, end quote, that in his view had no reference to Christianity proper or the Christianity of Christ. So we're going to see this directly flies in the face of some of the claims not only made by Doug Wilson and Stephen Wilkins in their books, but of course, Southern slavery apologists going back to the 19th century prior to the Civil War. Let's look at the historical context of all this. Now, before we get into the theological war thesis and how it relates to guys like Doug Wilson, it's important, I think, we should take a few minutes and look at the historical context around the issue of American slave owning. The transatlantic slave trade, it's typically dated by historians sometime around the late 15th century. It's noted that by about 1480, Portuguese ships were already transporting slaves from Africa to work in their colonies in the Cape Verde and Madeira Islands. Moving forward into the 16th and 17th centuries, other European superpowers got into the game. Spain, Holland, Britain, and France all became part of the increasingly lucrative transatlantic slave trade. By the 18th century, thanks to a 1713 agreement with Spain, Great Britain arose as the main supplier of enslaved people from Africa to Spanish colonies in the New World. In the Americas, there really wasn't a huge demand for slaves in the 17th century, but by the 18th century, with the development of sugar and tobacco plantations, the greatest number of slaves were transported. According to Encyclopedia Britannica, in an article on the transatlantic slave trade, they said, quote, the largest numbers of enslaved people were taken to the Americas during the 18th century when, according to historians' estimates, nearly three-fifths of the total volume of the transatlantic slave trade took place, end quote. How many slaves made that middle passage from Africa to the New World? Professors David Eltsus and David Richardson edited the book The Transatlantic Slave Database, which is widely considered to be the most comprehensive database of shipping records over the course of the entire slave trade. Henry Louis Gates Jr. points to their work when he states in a PBS article on slavery that, quote, between 1525 and 1866, in the entire history of the slave trade to the New World, according to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, 12.5 million Africans were shipped to the New World. 10.7 million survived the dreaded Middle Passage, disembarking in North America, the Caribbean, and South America. And how many of these 10.7 million Africans were shipped directly to North America? Only about 388,000. That's right, a tiny percentage, end quote. Exactly how long did the United States engage in the practice of slavery? You might be surprised to discover that it lasted several centuries and only officially ended with the Civil War. Essentially, the founding of America as a colony of European settlers virtually coincided with the transatlantic slave trade, which, as mentioned, had its heyday primarily during the 18th century. According to an article on the National Archives site on slavery, the authors state the following, quote, As soon as Europeans began to settle in America in the early 16th century, they imported enslaved Africans to work for them. As European settlements grew, so did the demand for enslaved people. Over the next 300 years, more than 11 million enslaved people were transported across the Atlantic from Africa to America and the West Indies, and Britain led this trade from the mid-17th century onwards. Ports such as Bristol, Liverpool, and Glasgow sent out many slaving ships each year, bringing great prosperity to their owners. Many other cities also grew rich on the profits of industries which depended on slave-produced materials such as cotton, sugar, and tobacco, end quote. Incidentally, 
if you're ever visiting Liverpool, which is just up the road from where I live, you really need to go and visit the International Slavery Museum. It's located on the Albert Docks down by the River Mersey. Among their collections are objects that demonstrate Liverpool's role in the transatlantic slave trade. And I think it's ironic as you walk around the streets of Liverpool, you reflect on how many of the beautiful buildings they date back to the 18th and 19th centuries. You know, so many of the Beatles fans that are visiting Liverpool, they're admiring today as they walk around the city. They were built off the back of the vast profits generated from the slave trade. One issue that arose virtually immediately in the American colonies was the fact that many of the founders were, in a manner of speaking, children of the Enlightenment. For most, though, who were born into a slaveholding society, a lot of it was normalized. The morality of slave owning was largely unquestioned by many at the time, but the seeds of conflict over the issue were present virtually from the beginning. Some of the colonies were pro-slavery, while others were against it. Further complicating the issue, most of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and about half the first delegates to the Continental Congress owned slaves. Out of the first five American presidents, four of them were slave owners. Ironically, however, that so many American colonists owned slaves and denied them their freedoms and liberties, well, that didn't stop them from protesting what they saw as British injustice within the colonies. In an article on the Founding Fathers' views of slavery, author Mark Malloy points out that many in Great Britain noticed the hypocrisy of the colonists' position. How could Americans decry Britain for its alleged tyranny over the colonies, when at the same time, so many of them owned slaves who had no rights at all. Malloy notes, for example, that, quote, in his 1775 treatise, Taxation No Tyranny, British author Dr. Samuel Johnson rhetorically asked, now quoting Johnson, how is it that we hear the loudest yelps for liberty among the drivers of Negroes? The paradox that Dr. Johnson called out in 1775 is a question Americans continue to grapple with to this day, the institution of slavery. The institution of slavery had been a part of American society for more than 150 years when the Revolutionary War began in 1775. Slavery existed and was protected by law in all 13 American colonies when they declared their independence from Great Britain in 1776, end quote. One of the main reasons the colonists originally came to America from Europe, of course, in the first place, was to escape religious persecution they had encountered there. They were seeking the freedom and the liberty that they so desired, that religious freedom. And yet, as we've seen, many of them owned slaves and wrestled with the seeming hypocrisy of their position, struggling to align their progressive enlightenment views over against the hard reality. The fact was there was a huge economic benefit to owning slaves. We can see this, for example, reflected in the words of the Declaration of Independence in 1776, when it states, quote, we hold these truths, capital T truths, to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. But we have to ask the question, how can all men be created equal and endowed by God with the so-called unalienable rights of things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, when so many of the founders were at the same time enslaving humans and denying them the very rights that they themselves enjoyed. Thomas Jefferson, who of course penned those famous words, himself owned hundreds of slaves and likely fathered several children with one of his slaves, Sally Hemings. Jefferson, though, he was kind of a man of principle. 
He was deeply conflicted over the issue of slavery. He wrote about how he felt that the institution of slavery was both a political and moral evil, but he felt powerless to change the situation. He described the institution of slavery, for example, as, quote, having the wolf by the ear. We can neither hold him nor safely let him go, end quote. George Washington stated in 1786 that, quote, there is not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the ab abolition of it, meaning slavery, end quote. John Jay, who was one of the framers of the Constitution, went even further than Washington when he argued also in 1786 that, quote, it is to be wished that slavery may be abolished. The honor of the states, as well as justice and humanity, in my opinion, loudly call upon them to emancipate these unhappy people, to contend for our own liberty, and to deny that blessing to others involves an inconsistency not to be excused, end quote. So we can see people like Washington and Jay were wrestling with the inconsistency of their own position. Despite many northern colonies outlawing slavery by the end of the 18th and early 19th centuries, roughly between 1774 and 1804, their economies, though, were in many ways still tied to exports from southern states, which, of course, itself was still relying on slave labor. According to Malloy, the issue only deepened as time went on, leading to further polarities between the northern and southern states. As time went on, for southern slave owners anyway, the narrative began to change, considering the growing divisions between them and the northern states. Malloy notes that, quote, as the founding generation passed on, and as slavery continued to expand and grow in the deep south, slave owners began to speak of slavery less as a necessary evil and more as positive good. Events such as Nat Turner's 1831 rebellion in Virginia soured many Southerners' views of gradual abolition as they viewed slave uprisings as a threat to their society. The institution of slavery contributed to the economic, political, and social divide between the North and South. The rise of militant abolitionism in the North provoked heated debates as to the future of the institution of slavery and who had the power to determine its future. Ultimately, these unfinished debates helped lead to the fratricidal civil war in 1861, end quote. Who were the voices prior to the Civil War framing slavery as a positive good? It turns out that it was a great many Southern clergymen and professors of theology in Southern seminaries, particularly in Presbyterian denominations, who led the way in defending the practice of slavery, describing it in positive terms. They cited numerous biblical examples from both the Old and the New Testaments to justify and buttress their position, as we're going to hear a little bit more on later. Further distorting the historical record, after the Civil War, the so-called lost cause almost immediately arose as an alternative view explaining why the South lost the war. This reverent mythologizing of history appears to have arisen from a certain Edward A. Pollard, the influential wartime editor of the Richmond Journal, about one year after the Civil War ended. His 1866 book, the Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates, was the first time those words had been employed, both to interpret the war as well as to justify the South's part in it. Caroline E. Janney, in an article on the Lost Cause from the Encyclopedia Virginia site, notes that several explanations have been offered up to explain the South's loss and their part in the war. Typically, she notes, there are six assertions that Southern Lost Cause apologists advance. 
Number one, quote, secession, not slavery, caused the Civil War. Number two, African Americans were faithful slaves, loyal to their masters and the Confederate cause, and unprepared for the responsibilities of freedom. Three, the Confederacy was defeated militarily only because of the Union's overwhelming advantages in men and resources. Four, Confederate soldiers were heroic and saintly. Five, the most heroic and saintly of all Confederates, perhaps of all Americans, was Robert E. Lee. And finally, number six, Southern women were loyal to the Confederate cause and sanctified by the sacrifice of their loved ones, end quote. Therefore, it's noteworthy to point out that not long after the war ended, within just a short year, there arose a blend of explanations, some of which were blatantly false, while others were at least partially true. This reality has only helped to muddy the historical waters further. It wasn't slavery that started the war. No, it was northern abolitionists who were the provocateurs. They ultimately defeated the saintly southern rebels as they fought against unfair and overwhelming odds. The argument from the defeated South was that eventually slavery would have died out of its own accord. There was no need to go to war over the issue. Northern aggression, therefore, was completely unjustified, while conversely, Southern slave-owning was entirely justified. One reason why it was justified was that for many Southerners after the war, they promoted the myth of the so-called happy slave. They asserted that the truth was that beloved slaves were in reality part of the family of their white masters. They were treated well, they enjoyed their work, they were cast as almost childlike in their innocence and reverence for their masters who treated them so well. In her article on the lost cause, Janney provides two fairly contemporary examples of how this myth was promoted in the South and how long it actually endured. Citing the first, she says, quote, Generally speaking, the Negroes proved a harmless and affectionate race, easily governed and happy in their condition, according to the 1908 edition of the textbook History of Virginia by Mary Tucker McGill, the 1964 edition of Virginia, History, Government, Geography by Francis Butler Simpkins, Spotswood Honeycutt Jones, and Sidman P. Poole was not much different. Now, quoting from that book, quote, A feeling of strong affection existed between masters and slaves in a majority of Virginia homes, the authors wrote. Such statements are not supported by modern scholarship, end quote. The truth is that a great number of slaves tried desperately to escape their harsh and brutal conditions. But even the book and later beloved movie Gone with the Wind furthers the stereotype of the happy slave. It portrays the pre-Civil War Southern slaves as basically happy and content with their lot and later overwhelmed by their sudden and, of course, unwelcome freedom after it was all over. Of course, we have to ask exactly how happy were the slaves. I talked earlier about Frederick Douglass. Let's return to his example. In his book, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, he argues strongly that, quote, I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity, a sanctifier of the most hateful frauds, and a dark shelter under which the darkest, foulest, grossest, and most infernal deeds of the slaveholders find the strongest protection. End quote. Here's another account from Lewis Hughes. I mentioned him from his book, Thirty Years a Slave. Now, Lewis Hughes recounts what happened to him after being discovered as a stowaway on a mailboat. He was seeking to escape the plantation where he worked. After being caught and taken back to his master, 
Hughes was first of all imprisoned in the barn overnight. The next day, this is what happened to him. And keep in mind, his master was a good, church-going, Christian man. Hughes set the scene. He says, quote, I was taken to the barn where stocks had been prepared, beside which were a cowhide and a pail of salt water, all prepared for meat. It was terrible, but there was no escape. I was fastened in the stocks, my clothing removed, and the whipping began. Boss whipped me a while, then he sat down and read his paper, after which the whipping was resumed. This continued for two hours. Fastened as I was in the stocks, I could only stand and take lash after lash as long as he desired, the terrible rawhide cutting into my flesh at every stroke. Then he used peach tree switches, which cracked the flesh so the blood oozed out. And he goes on. After this came the paddle, two and a half feet long and three inches wide. Salt and water was at once applied to wash the wounds, and the smarting was maddening. This torture was common among the southern planters. God only knows what I suffered under it all, and he alone gave me the strength to endure, end quote. So much for the myth of the happy slave and the kind, gentle white master who rarely, if ever, mistreated his slaves. They were just part of the family. And it's interesting, Hughes goes on to elaborate how religion, and specifically Christianity, played a role in propping up the whole horrific system when he states, quote, As an offset, probably such diabolical cruelties as those which were practiced upon me in common with nearly all the slaves in the cotton region of the South, it was the custom in the section of the country where I lived to have the white minister preach to the servants Sunday afternoon after the morning service for the whites. The white people hired the minister by the year to preach for them at their church. Then he had to preach to each master's slaves in turn. The circuit was made once a month, but there was a service of some kind every Sunday. The slaves, on some places, gathered in the yard, at others in the white folks' schoolhouses, and they all seemed pleased and eager to hear the word of God. Now, this is interesting how he concludes. He says, It was a strong evidence of their native intelligence and discrimination that they could discern the difference between the truths of the word and the professed practice of those truths by their masters. My boss took pride in having all his slaves look clean and tidy at the Sabbath service, but how would he have liked to have the slaves, with backs lacerated with the lash, appear in those assemblies with their wounds uncovered? The question can never be answered. The master and most of his victims have gone where professions of righteousness will not avail to cover the barbarities practiced here, end quote. There's another element to the lost cause mythology also. Lumped in with all that revisionist history was the mythologizing and near elevation to sainthood of Confederate leaders like Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson, led by men such as R. L. Dabney, who served as Jackson's chief of staff, and he was a chaplain as well in the Confederate Army. He served there for a time. Their theological and biblical defense of slavery in the 19th century helped to fuel the South's determination to fight against the North in the Civil War. It was all framed as a righteous cause. Hello, listeners. My name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organizations, and more. Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us 
and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their court experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. But that view of history certainly didn't cease, as we saw when the Civil War ended. Fueled by the lost cause argument, their viewpoint would later be employed in the 20th century in the midst of the civil rights movement. More recently, we see it again used by neo-Confederates and white supremacists. Unfortunately, due to the reach of authors like Doug Wilson, for example, his promotion and unique spin on the theological war thesis and the lost cause mythology has, through his writings, made its way into Christian day school and homeschooling environments also. Therefore, men like Wilson have unfortunately influenced generations of impressionable young Christians with these ideas. And speaking of which, let's take time out for just one quick example of this. This is drawn from the Omnibus 3 textbook that was edited by Doug Wilson and G. Tyler Fisher. Omnibus, in case you don't remember from when I mentioned it in a previous episode, what it is, it's a six-part series of textbooks, or academic textbooks, I should say, aimed at the so-called classical Christian school model advocated by Doug Wilson and others. Therefore, it can be found in both Christian day schools and Christian homeschooling environments. But while we're on the subject, let's not forget that blogger Rachel Green Miller has done an admirable job detailing the many cases of plagiarism within the Omnibus curriculum series, which, as we've already noted, is a charge Doug Wilson is very familiar with. Plagiarism aside, now this example is from the chapter Reformation to the Present. In session three, writing, the authors assign the learner a task, which is to write a so-called slave letter. Just imagine that you are a young child having to write this in a Christian academic context. When we talk about gaslighting. The authors charge the learner with the following writing task. It says, quote, pretend you are a slave who lives far away from your family. Write a letter to your wife slash husband slash children. Tell them how you are how you are doing, what your plans are, or, for variation, pretend that you live in the South. You are a faithful Christian and your family has a couple of servants that help with work around the house. Write a letter to a relative or friend in the North who thinks that all your slaves are mistreated and beaten. Explain how your family treats your slaves well and your view of slavery in general. And quote. So let's get this straight. As a budding, creative Christian writer, you can pretend to be a slave, writing to your wife or husband or children, who, of course, are somewhere else. We don't know where they are. And you can talk about all your fantastic plans that you have for the future. I mean, what about escaping? What about the plan of being reunited with your estranged family who may have been sold to another master in another state? Or you could pretend to be a benevolent white Christian slave-owning master. Oh, wait, you don't have slaves. No, you have servants who just help with work around the house. You're going to write this to your abolitionist relatives in the North, who are probably godless atheists, to correct the record on slave owning. So what will you say? Now, they already primed the learner to argue that here in the South, despite the lies you heard about us in the North, slaves are not mistreated or beaten. Absolutely not. In this God-fearing family of slave owners, we treat our slaves so well, whoops, they said slaves, not servant in that second line. And of course, that kid's view of slavery will likely sound suspiciously like the myth of the so-called happy slave promoted by the lost cause mythology and later Wilson and Wilkins. 
Thus, if you're a Christian kid in such an environment, you'll probably already have either read Southern Slavery as it was, or maybe Black and Tan as a signed reading, not to mention whatever else they teach about slavery in the omnibus curriculum. I wonder what that letter is going to say. Talk about gaslighting an entire generation, but here again, this is the malign influence of Doug Wilson on such impressionable young minds. Now that we've taken a bit of a look at some of the historical background, the context of slave owning in the South and in America, it's time to dive into the meat of the issue. Let's look at this issue of the theological war thesis. What exactly is it? How has that argument spread through the work of Christian Reconstructionists like R.J. Rush Dooney and other neo-Confederates or paleo-Confederates like Doug Wilson and Stephen Wilkins, and from there into the Christian day school and homeschooling movement? And having said all that, why should this question even matter today? Aside from the fact that the theological war thesis is based on, at best, a dubious, reverently mythologized, and highly revisionist reading of history. As we'll see, in addition to parroting the pre-war defense of slavery by Southern clergymen and theologians, the theological war thesis also derives certain elements from the lost cause Southern mythology following the South's defeat in the Civil War. It's defined by Sebesta and Haig in their article as follows. The theological war thesis is, quote, an assessment that interprets the 19th century CSA, that's the Confederate States of America, to be an Orthodox Christian nation and understands that the 1861 to 1865 U.S. Civil War to have been a theological war of the future of American religiosity fought between devout Confederate and heretical Union states, end quote. The position also holds that the Confederate flag and other Southern icons are in reality symbols of Christianity, that the South was a true Christian nation. So we see elements of Christian nationalism in the position as well. And finally, opposition to all of it equates to a rejection of Christianity itself. Let's look at the origins of the theological war thesis. So the question at the outset of it all is this. Why should a defense of the practice of slavery matter at all? Aside from the current dangers posed by the Christian nationalism driving much of the argument forward, what exactly is the relevance of this discussion today, other than the obvious moral hideousness and clear racism that this line of argumentation represents, as well as the historiography? On the face of it, one instantly troubling factor is that in large part it was Christian theologians, seminary professors, pastors, who advanced this argument, both in the antebellum South as well as today. Let's not forget, Doug Wilson and Stephen Wilkins are both pastors and theologians. Certainly, that should be of a concern to anyone at first glance. Why would a Christian want to defend the horrible practice of slavery? Well, let's look at the historical context of the argument itself. As we've already touched on a bit already, we can see that the theological war thesis traces its origins back to the mid-19th century, with the Southern Presbyterian Church, and thus it predates the Civil War. In the antebellum South, while a number of clergy voiced their support of slavery, we're going to focus on three main influencers and promoters of this doctrine. The first one is R.L. Robert Louis Dabney. I've mentioned him already. He was born in 1820, died in 1898. Dabney was born in Louisa County, Virginia in 1820, was educated at Union Theological Seminary in Virginia. He earned both an M.A. and later a D.D. Following a stint as a pastor, he eventually returned to Union and became a professor and later chair 
of Theology and Calvinist Orthodoxy by 1859. After he received his M.A. from Union in 1842, Dabney became a Southern Presbyterian pastor of, get this, the Tinkling Spring Presbyterian Church, Virginia, in 1847. That's a real place. I wish I could go there. I want to go to the Tinkling Springs Presbyterian Church. Anyway, when the war broke out, he served as a chaplain in the 18th Virginia Regiment, and after General Stonewall Jackson heard him preach, he asked Dabney to become his adjutant or chief of staff, and he was awarded the rank of major. He would later write a biography of Jackson, whom he greatly admired. It was published in 1864 in London, and then 1866 it was published in New York. We noted earlier that part of the Lost Cause mythology included the spiritualizing of such figures as Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. This is in part where it originated. John B. Bowles, writing in the Encyclopedia of Virginia, comments that after the war, Dabney, quote, had been a reluctant secessionist, but steadfastly defended the Confederate cause until the day of his death. Terribly embittered by the defeat of the South and by the end of slavery, Dabney was decidedly undemocratic in his politics and racist to the core. He defended an idealized version of the Old South as the very apex of Christian civilization, end quote. Incidentally, Dabney is cited uncritically at many points in Wilson and Wilkins's Southern Slavery as it was in support of, quote, biblical slavery, defending the South as righteous and yet at the same time decrying the slave trade itself as morally evil. We're going to touch on this again a little bit later on, but it's interesting to note, really important to point out that Dabney's views on slavery form a portion of Wilson and Wilkins's book. The second person is James Henley Thornwell, 1812 to 1862. He was born in South Carolina. He was educated in Europe and then later at Harvard. He became the pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, South Carolina in 1835. According to Erskine Clark in the South Carolina Encyclopedia, in an article on Thornwell, quote, he was elected professor of Bell's Letters and Logic at the South Carolina College in 1837. He acquired a reputation as a brilliant young professor, and his fame soon spread. He served briefly as pastor of the Presbyterian Church in Columbia, but returned to the college as professor of sacred literature at Evidences of Christianity. He accepted a call to a Presbyterian church in Charleston in 1851, but was called the next year to the college, this time as president. In 1855, he became professor of theology at Columbia Theological Seminary, a position he held until his death, end quote. Another interesting fact about Thornwell was, according to Clark, the following, quote, Thornwell was a unionist until 1860, but when secession came, he became an ardent supporter of the Southern cause. His theological and political thought provided a powerful ideological prop for the Confederacy. In 1861, he wrote a theological justification for slavery unsurpassed in its startling brilliance, end quote startlingly brilliant, that is, to those who had already bought into the argument. And the third figure is Benjamin Morgan Palmer, 1818-1902. Born in Columbia, South Carolina, he was educated at Amherst College in Massachusetts and graduated from the University of Georgia in 1838. Palmer served as pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, from 1841 to 1842, he then moved to pastor a church in Columbia, South Carolina from 1843 to 1855. 
He also taught at Columbia Theological Seminary from 1853 to 1856. He was also the founding editor of the Southern Presbyterian Review and pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in New Orleans from 1856 until his death in 1902. He established the Southwest Presbyterian Seminary. According to the Dictionary of Louisiana History, Palmer's, quote, Thanksgiving sermon in 1860, defending slavery and calling for secession, was widely distributed and probably had a great influence in bringing Louisiana into the Confederate camp, end quote. Preached just 23 days after Abraham Lincoln was elected president, in his Thanksgiving sermon, Palmer famously stated, quote, A nation often has a character as well-defined and intense as that of the individual. If, then, the South is such a people, what, at this juncture, is their providential trust? I answer that it is to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery as now existing, end quote. In a 2019 article in the historic New Orleans collection, author Nick Weldon goes on to state that, quote, the latter line emphasized in italics in printed copies of the nearly 7,000-word sermon became a rallying cry within the states that would soon form the Confederacy. Tens of thousands of copies of the speech were quickly printed and circulated throughout the South, while regional newspapers published Palmer's words, often alongside enthusiastic commentary. Palmer elevated the defense of slavery to a godly duty. Now, quoting Palmer, We defend the cause of God and religion, he declared. The emphasis added in the printed speech. Now, going back to Palmer, the abolition spirit is undeniably atheistic, end quote. Palmer argued for white supremacy on moral grounds, using racist stereotypes to insist that, lastly quoting Palmer again, no calamity can befall the black race greater than the loss of the protection that they enjoy under this patriarchal system, end quote. And just as an interesting side note, if you listen to my episodes on Doug Wilson, you'll know that biblical patriarchy or Christian patriarchy is a major plank in his theological platform. Now, I think there's a connection between Wilson's patriarchal views and pro-slavery arguments that, as Palmer argued in his Thanksgiving sermon, were patriarchal systems that protected the slaves. White male slave owners were at the top of the structure. Their wives submitted to them, and their slaves were at the bottom of the scale. White southern slave owners interpreted biblical doctrine to frame the whole system as being part of God's design and order. In the same way, the patriarchalists like Wilson frame wifely submission to their husbands and so-called godly families as being by God's design for humanity. It's all in the context of the family sphere that the husband begins to take dominion. That, of course, is part of what Rush Dooney taught as well. This patriarchal view is also part of the promotion of what we heard earlier about the myth of the so-called happy slave. It would be calamitous for the slaves, Palmer maintained, if such a patriarchal and protective system were abolished. The reality was that white slave owners serving as patriarchs over their happy slaves were doing them a huge favor. And besides, they wouldn't have heard the gospel if it hadn't been for their white Christian masters telling them the good news. And again, I think it's interesting to note another connection here. Wilson similarly argues that godly marriage and family should be based on a patriarchal system of father rule, and that, just like the slavery apologist argues, the system is all set up by God's design. Let's take a look at some of the modern-day proponents of the theological war thesis. 
after the Civil War, a Southern Presbyterian church published biographies and writings of all three men. Despite, though, the promotion of their work in the South, their arguments remained largely outside the mainstream until the 20th century. That is, until when the work of four men brought it back into focus. The first one was a certain Richard M. Weaver. He was a scholar who taught English at the University of Chicago. While he was studying for an M.A. at Vanderbilt University, Weaver became influenced by the work of the so-called Southern Agrarians, and this was a philosophical discussion group of 12 men who were all linked to Vanderbilt. In their 1930 manifesto, I'll take my stand, the South and the agrarian tradition, these agrarians promoted a reactionary and romanticized defense of the South and lost cause mythology. This is tied, of course, to neo-Confederacy, the portrayal of the South's role in the Civil War and its actions in a positive light. A historically revisionist view, neo-Confederates tend to stand for such things as limited government, states' rights, the rights of states to succeed, and Southern nationalism. The second person was R.J. Rush Dooney, 1916-2007. Of course, as we've noted, he was the founder of Christian Reconstructionism. He also started the Chalcedon Foundation in 1965. According to the authors, he, quote, initiated the Christian Reconstructionist movement in the United States that advocates the establishment of biblical republics under God's law, or theonomy, end quote. And that's according to Sebesta and Haig. We're going to see more on him later. The third person was C. Greg Singer, 1910-1999. He was an American historian and theologian who also played a key role in establishing the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, in the 1970s. He also served as the last leader of the Concerned Presbyterians, which was a layman's group within the PCA. Singer envisioned the PCA as the successor to the pre-war Southern Presbyterian Church. He also championed the notion of the war as a theological affair, as opposed to about it being about slavery or economics. Writing during the Civil Rights era, Singer said that Northern abolitionism entailed, quote, a revolt against the biblical conception of society and a revolt against the doctrine of divine sovereignty in human affairs, end quote. He seemed to entertain elements of Christian nationalism. For example, he stated in his 1964 work, a theological interpretation of American history that only, quote, in the light of the Christian revelation can American history be brought into perspective, end quote. The fourth figure was a certain Eugene Genovese. He was a historian who reappraised the above works in the 1980s and 1990s. Interestingly, here's another Wilson connection. It would be Genovese who would write a glowing endorsement of Wilson's 2005 book, Black and Tan. Furthermore, before the book was published, he even found time to read through Wilson's manuscript, offering up suggestions and, according to a post on Wilson's blog and May blog, helpful criticisms of it. Thus, in the end, Genovese bears some part in pushing the narrative that Doug Wilson advanced in black and tan. Let's just take a look at what he said on the cover of the book. Genovese wrote the following endorsement. He said, quote, The Reverend Douglas Wilson may not be a professional historian, as his detractors say, but he has a strong grasp of the essentials of the history of slavery and its relation to Christian doctrine. Indeed, sad to say, his grasp is a great deal stronger than that of most professors of American history, whose distortions and trivializations disgrace our college classrooms. And the Reverend Mr. Wilson is a fighter, 
especially effective in defense of Christianity against those who try to turn Jesus' way of salvation into pseudo-moralistic drivel. Eugene Genovese, we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And there's a fourth aspect to this too, and that involves a certain publication called Sprinkle Publications, and they were out of Harrisburg, Virginia, and they reprinted texts from Southern Presbyterian clergymen in the pre-Civil War era, and this started around about the 1970s. Sprinkle had sold 30,000 copies of Dabney's work on Stonewall Jackson as of 1994 and continues to receive orders for this work, as well as others, by Southern clergymen and theologians. So Sprinkle Publications also bears some of this as well for promoting the theological war thesis. And adding to the above, organizations such as the Neo-Confederate League of the South, and of course we know that Steve Wilkins, along with Michael Hill, helped to found it and later served on its board. It's been described as a racist hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. It's also been described as an American white nationalist, neo-Confederate, white supremacist organization. Their stated aim is to make up an independent country consisting of the former states of the Confederate South. So to these organizations, we can also add Rush Dooney's Chalcedon Foundation, which also helped promote the theological war thesis. On their legacy, Sebesta and Haig note that, quote, by the mid-1960s, therefore, Weaver, Singer, and Rush Dooney had, to varying degrees, reasserted that the Confederate states fought to preserve Orthodox Christianity in the face of Union abolitionism, and that the Civil War was a theological war over the future direction of the United States. Publishing at the height of the struggle for civil rights in the United States, these authors argued that civil rights were anti-Christian, that inequality is God's intended order, and they drew on Thornwell, Dabney, and their contemporaries to provide a historical and religious justification for this position. The role of these men in wider conservative and Christian Reconstructionist groups resulted in their proposals finding a broad audience amongst the religious right in the United States, end quote. Just as a side note, I've mentioned in numerous podcasts how Rush Dooney's work, for example, found a home in the incipient Christian right back in the 1970s and 80s. A lot of his ideas served as the scaffolding for what would become the Christian right. It's just interesting, I think, to note how all these ideas contributed to the toxic mess that is the Christian right as it is allied with much of the Republican Party today. Let's take a look at the tenets of the theological war thesis. Now, these modern-day theologians who founded and promoted the theological war thesis going back to the 19th and then in the 20th century, they not only argued that the Confederacy comprised an Orthodox Christian nation, they also, number one, defended slavery on biblical grounds, number two, denounced public education and mass schooling, and here we can think of Rush Dooney's concepts of statism and government schools. And then number three, they proposed to maintain a patriarchal and an unequal society. This is like against black people, people of color, the LGBTQ community, as well as women's rights. And as we're going to see, Wilson and Wilkins speak of the last two in their book. They call them sodomites and feminists, posing a threat to the natural, divinely regulated order of godly society. Many Southern preachers, as we saw already, both pre- and post-Civil War, cast the entire South as an Orthodox Christian nation under assault from atheistic Northern abolitionists. Thus, the entire conflict was framed as a theological issue. As we noted earlier, many Southern clergymen 
also supported the South's secession from the Union. The Civil War was portrayed by Dabney and others as an attack on the godly South by the heretical and atheistic forces of the North. Just to take one example, let's look at author Jamar Tisby. He notes in a 2022 article in the Zondervan Academic Site that, quote, Southern Methodist preacher J.W. Tucker said to Confederates in 1862, now quoting Tucker, Your cause is the cause of God, the cause of Christ, of humanity. It is a conflict of truth with error, of Bible with northern infidelity, of pure Christianity with northern fanaticism, end quote. We heard earlier about Southern clergyman Benjamin Morgan Palmer, who famously stated in his Thanksgiving sermon, delivered in New Orleans in 1860, shortly before Louisiana seceded, that slavery has, quote, fashioned our modes of life and determined all our habits of thought and feeling and molded the very type of our civilization, end quote. He went on to say that it was their religious duty to, quote, defend the cause of God in religion, and in particular, to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery, end quote. In addition to fueling the South's drive to secede, as we saw, this sermon would later go on to become a central text and tenet of the theological war thesis. Moreover, during the Civil War, a great many Southern clergymen and theologians argued that in general, the Confederate soldiers were far more Christian and religious than their Northern, more secular counterparts. Once again, this line of reasoning supported the argument that the South was a more Christian nation than the North. We again note another connection between this line of reasoning and Southern slavery as it was. In their book, for example, Wilson and Wilkins argue that the Confederate Army was, quote, the most evangelical army in history, end quote, due to a widespread revival experienced at one point during the war. In 1865, as I've already noted, R.L. Dabney wrote, The Life and Campaigns of Lieutenant General Thomas J. Jackson, Stonewall Jackson. In it, he painted Jackson as both a Confederate hero and a pious Presbyterian Christian soldier. Incidentally, this volume is still available on various Christian homeschooling curriculum websites. After this, he penned A Defense of Virginia and Through Her of the South, in which he made use of biblical passages to defend slavery and refute abolitionist arguments. He also claimed, quote, that slavery was a necessary good for what he called the depraved lower classes, end quote, quoting from Sebastian Haig's article, abolitionism was both an infidel and anti-scriptural movement. Since the Bible legitimated slavery, it, condon- it condoned slavery, rejection of it was tantamount to a rejection of Christianity. In his work, Dabney also condemned universal human rights as well as women's rights, because those rights, if allowed, would A, destroy the family, and B, ultimately destroy society. He also opposed public schooling, and I noted already all this sounds eerily similar to the later argument of Rush Dooney on the importance of the family and his denouncement of public or government schools. Dabney also challenged modern science and the findings of evolution as ungodly and unbiblical. In his view, governments were only legitimate if they, quote, originated from the will of God. He was also virulently pro-segregation and he wrote vehemently that the blood of Africans and whites ought not to be mixed, because that would dilute and pollute not only the white race, but it could also ultimately destroy Christianity itself in the South by weakening the so-called genealogical purity of the Confederate South. Incidentally, this argument would be echoed later on on Easter Day, 
1960, in a sermon preached on the radio by Bob Jones Sr. It's entitled, Is Segregation Scriptural? Citing from the Bible, Jones argued that race mixing was against God's providential designs for humanity and that each race should therefore not intermingle. And of course, this also led to BJU becoming a segregationist academy. Even after allowing African-American students, they forbade interracial dating and marriage. Dr. Camille Lewis, in an article on her site, A Time to Laugh, note that Jones's argument, as laid out in his sermon, quote, was the official and widely publicized position paper on race for Bob Jones University from 1960 until at least 1986. They sent it out in pamphlet form to their constituency to defend their racism and sold it in their campus bookstore, end quote. They would end up losing their tax-exempt status over the issue of racial segregation, and it would take them decades to get it back. And of course, it's ironic to note that years later, they issued a kind of a half-hearted apology about how they'd apparently gotten it so badly wrong for all those decades. One additional line of argumentation advanced by R.L. Dabney in his book, A Defense of Virginia, was that slavery was a positive thing because it introduced black slaves to Christianity. Now, this is a very common argument used by pro-slavery apologists. In his article, Tisby points out that, quote, Dabney saw introducing Africans to Christianity as one of the most praiseworthy benefits of slavery for black people. Because black people were condemned to perish in their pagan beliefs, Dabney saw white Christian slave owners as loving people standing between the enslaved and eternal damnation. Now, quoting Dabney, he says, and above all, was it nothing that black slaves should be brought by the relation of servitude under the consciences and Christian zeal of a Christian people? In Dabney's mind, the gentle ministrations of the whip and the admonition of slaves to obey their masters had the positive effect of commending Christianity to black people, end quote. Once again, in the minds of men like Dabney, there were several reasons why slavery was a positive institution, and the fact that slaves were introduced to Christianity by their benevolent white Christian masters must have surely been the icing on the cake. While much of Dabney's work was ignored into the 20th century, at least outside the South, as we saw, some picked up on his more general argument about the attacks of, on Christianity by the forces of secularism, and they saw him as a prophetic figure of sorts who foresaw the coming culture war between Christianity and secular humanism. Thanks for sticking with me on this very long episode here on Mindship Podcast, taking a look at Southern slavery as it was, as well as a lot of the historical context and background. If you like history like me, then you would have enjoyed hopefully the first half of this episode. In the second half, we're going to take a much closer look at the modern influencers who led to guys like Wilkins and Wilson writing their book. As, as we're finding out, there's a lot more to this story than meets the eye. And then we're going to finish the episode by looking at Doug Wilson's responses in his new book, Black and Tan. What has he said to his detractors, both about Southern slavery as it was, and his revision of that book, which is, as I say, is called Black and Tan. So we'll take a look at that in the second half. I just wanted to mention what's coming up here in the next few episodes on Mindship Podcast. I've had some really phenomenal guests. I've got a lot of episodes recorded in the can waiting to come out. I've got one coming up soon with Dawn McCarty. She's got an absolutely unbelievable story. Child abduction raised in the Mormon church. 
abuse. It's unbelievable what she survived. And now she's in a position where she's helping other abuse victims. Absolutely heart-wrenching, but really empowering story. I also talked to Charles Utter. He's written a book about a Catholic priest where in the town where he grew up. And it's an, again, you could not make this stuff up. It's called Roman Collar Crime. And it's just an absolutely amazing story. I've also talked to Frankie Tease. She does her Frankie Files podcast. And again, she comes out of a high-controlled New Age cult in Southern California. Again, she was able to escape and has now rebuilt her life, or I should say she's in the process of rebuilding her life. Doing her podcast helps other people like me and probably like you if you came out of any sort of high-control religious group. So I think a lot of people will resonate with her story. And then finally... I had a chat with Emily Page. She lives now down in Sydney, Australia, but she grew up attending Doug Wilson's Logos School. Speaking of Doug Wilson, as we're doing this episode, she has an, just an incredible story. It, it's heart-rending, it's, but it's also empowering as well, where she survived years of sexual abuse by one of the teachers, a certain Jim Nance, and there's just an, an incredible story that she goes into. It's over a two-hour conversation that we had and it was mostly me just listening with an open mouth to what happened just one thing after the next after the next and it just got worse and worse and worse so it finally did get better in the end but i will let her tell her story so that episode with emily page is coming up as well so as i mentioned i've just got some absolutely incredible episodes in the pipeline so look for those coming out soon and then one other thing i've been doing a lot of work on patreon putting out episodes in between my regular podcast. I just did one the other day discussing the documentary Shiny Happy People, Duggar Family Secrets, which of course is blown up on Amazon right now. For those of us like myself who survived growing up in the Institute and Basic Life Principles, the Bill Gothard cult, which of course when I was a kid it was called the Institutes in Basic Youth Conflicts. But what I did was I broke down a lot of the teachings behind the so-called evangelical purity culture or in the Gothard cult what was called the modesty teachings or modesty culture, the umbrella of authority. And I tried to kind of give the theological, the biblical backstory to what drove or what still drives a lot of his teachings. Even though he's been removed from his position as the head of IBLP a few years ago, it doesn't matter. If you look at their website, it's still basically full of his content. They've never disavowed his theology, his teachings, so they're still promoting the same stuff. And of course, the Duggars were the poster family for his cult. They helped to mainstream it. They helped to popularize it. So if you want to find out more about the sort of backstory, what goes on in terms of the behind the scenes stuff, the theology, the biblical you know, argument of the purity modesty culture, then check out that episode. It's only available on Patreon. In fact, speaking of Patreon, we've got a couple of new supporters to thank. We've got Pat Weldon, as well as Marianne Franklin. Thank you to Marianne, especially because she came in at a $10 a month level. So I just sent her a really nice Mindship podcast t-shirt as a way of thank you. So if you want to support the show, if you want to get access to our private Facebook group, as well as these exclusive patron-only episodes that I drop every other week, and starting up in September, we're going to be doing our Mindship Zoom calls again. So these are all benefits that you get for being a Patreon supporter of the show. All right, let's get on back into the second half, looking in more detail at some of the modern iterations of this theological war thesis, some of the major influencers who promoted it, and then we're going to get into Doug Wilson and Steve Wilkins' book, Southern Slavery As It Was. I'll break it down, read some passages for you. Then we're going to conclude by looking at Doug Wilson's sort of current argument from his book, Black and Tan, 
Has he revoked his position? Has he backed down or has he doubled down? We're going to find out in the second half of this issue of the Theological War Thesis, Southern Slavery as it was. Let's now take a look at some of the modern iterations of the Theological War Thesis, which will then set us up for an in-depth look at Wilson and Wilkins' book, Southern Slavery as it was. We're going to look at R.J. Rush Dooney's connection to the Theological War Thesis. And of course, I've done a lot of research into Rush Dooney, Christian Reconstructionism, Dominion Theology, so this is really an area of interest for me. So let's take a look at this. In the 1970s and 1980s, as Rush Dooney's scheme of Christian Reconstructionism advocated for a, quote, reconstructed society fashioned along the principles of Old Testament law, a question naturally arose. Who exactly would administer this new republic? In other words, if Rush Dooney had his way and a theocracy were to be established, who exactly would run it? It would be, Sebesta and Haig assert, by, quote, those whom Christian Reconstructionists consider to have correctly orthodox interpretation of Christianity and would, amongst other things, introduce capital punishments for myriad offenses, end quote. We've noted previously that Rush Dooney, of course, advocated that the Old Testament law should be made the civil law of the land, this is his version of theonomy, together with capital punishment for a number of violations of that law. Mark Potok, in an article on Doug Wilson's connections to Rush Dooney and Christian Reconstructionism, makes the case that one way in which the two men are linked, aside from their theology, is this issue of a so-called biblical defense of slavery. Potok comments on how Rush Dooney initially discovered the theological war thesis, the work of Dabney, and how and why he started to promote it. He says, quote, During the 1960s, as part of a backlash against the civil rights movement, a theologian named Greg Singer rediscovered the work of Robert L. Dabney, the chaplain to Civil War General Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Soon, he was joined by another far-right theologian, Russus John Rush Dooney, who also came across Dabney, a man who had spent the 30 years after the Civil War popularizing the idea that the godly South had been victimized by godless Yankees. And Potok goes on to say, both Singer and Rush Dooney admired Dabney's ideas, which included a view of the South as a religiously ordered society and orthodox Christian remnant in a nation increasingly overtaken by rationalist and anti-religious thought. Dabney's virulent racism, he saw blacks as a morally inferior race, a sordid alien taint marked by lying, theft, drunkenness, laziness, waste, also supported Rush Dooney's dislike for the civil rights movement and ongoing desegregation. Dabney explicitly defended slavery as godly, a theme Wilson and Wilkins would later repeat. And he goes on to say, in 1973, Rush Dooney published Institutes of Biblical Law, a book that established him as the founding thinker of a radical theology that came to be known as Christian Reconstruction. The book fleshed out Rush Dooney's vision of a society reconstructed along Old Testament lines, a world in which religious governors would mete out biblical punishments like the stoning to death of gays, adulteresses, incorrigible children, and many others. Relying on a literal reading of the Bible, Rush Dooney espoused a society of classes with differing rights, opposed interracial marriage, and scoffed at egalitarianism, end quote. Rush Dooney's argument essentially was that the early republic comprised a decentralized Protestant feudal system, 
in the Civil War, that Orthodox nation was destroyed. Sebesta and Haig state that, quote, Union victory, in Rushduni's interpretation, was a defeat for Christian Orthodoxy and paved the way for the rise of an unorthodox social gospel in the post-bellum, that's after the Civil War, United States. Rushduni has condemned public education and contended that the Civil War was not about slavery, but the consolidation and centralization of federal government power, end quote. We're going to see this repeated several times in Wilson and Wilkins's book, this exact same argument. Going back to Potok, he picks up the story of how Rushduni and the Christian Reconstructionist movement combined his belief with views on Christian education. He states that, quote, Rushduni also developed a strategic plan. The most effective way of implementing his vision, he said, would be to develop Christian homeschooling and private schools in order to train up a generation to take the reins of society. So vigorous was his pursuit of this strategy that Rushduni would eventually come to be known to many as the father of the Christian homeschooling movement. It was an exciting time for Rushduni. Some of his principal co-religionists and founders became active in the 1970s, and his influence began to extend to some of America's leading evangelical churches. And he concludes, he says, and it marked the start of an important collaboration between people who viewed themselves as Orthodox Christians and Confederate nationalists, a merging of the theocratic idea of religious government and a view of the 19th century Confederate cause as fundamentally right, end quote, following the reissue of many works by Southern clergymen who were pro-slavery and theological war thesis advocates by Sprinkle Press in the 1970 and principally Dabney's works, Rushduni also promoted those books through his Chalcedon Foundation. He also applauded Dabney's argument in defense of slavery. Sebesta and Haig point out that, quote, Rushduni's promotion of Sprinkle's reprints brought them to the attention of the wider Christian Reconstructionist movement in the United States. The republication and promotion of these Southern Presbyterian Confederate works led to their discussion and review in magazine articles, books, audio cassettes, videotape sets, and other pro-Confederate theological and political venues, end quote. Thus, by the end of the 1970s, with the assistance and promotion of Rush Dooney and others, they, together with Sprinkle, according to the authors, quote, had republished and reinterpreted the historical record and, based on the evidence of a few atypical 19th century texts, claimed that the 1861 to 1865 Confederate Army to be populated by theologically driven Christian Reconstructionists fighting to preserve their Orthodox Christian nation against heretical Union troops, end quote. And we can see, for example, in the magazine published by the Chalcedon Foundation, Rush Dooney and other Reconstructionists have promoted the theological war thesis also. For example, in one article in the journal, Reconstructionist Joseph Moorcraft drew upon 19th century sources, mostly Dabney and then later Weaver, and cast the Civil War as the heretical North attacking the Orthodox South. The Chalcedon Foundation has also linked to and supported the League of the South via its website, as well as promoting its conventions. Authors like Otto Scott, for example, have written for both the Chalcedon Report and the Southern Partisan Journals. Sebastian Haig state that this interlinking is evidence of, quote, a growing overlap in the historical, political, and theological perspectives of participants in both organizations. This indicates a conflation of conservative, neo-Confederate, and Christian nationalisms 
into a potent reinterpretation of United States history, one centered upon the thesis that the Confederate States were a bastion of Orthodox Christianity standing in the face of the heretical United States. End quote. Let's take a look at that other one, the League of the South. We've already mentioned it was founded by Michael Hill, along with Stephen Wilkins, the co-author of Southern Slavery as it was in 1994 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And it held its first national convention in Charleston, South Carolina, just five months later. By the year 2000, it counted around 9,000 members. And that same year, some two to 3,000 people attended its rally entitled Declaration of Cultural Independence held in Montgomery, Alabama. In addition to running their own site, the League of the South supports other similar sites like Free Alabama and Free Mississippi. They also publish a bi-monthly newsletter, Southern Patriot. They distribute videos and audio recordings promoting their version of American history and its development. Members can attend lectures, conferences, summer schools, as well as an annual convention. Its basic argument from the beginning has been to promote the notion of an orthodox South and for the founding of a republic based on the, quote, Christian principles of its Confederate predecessors. Not only do they claim to represent true Southerners who adhere to these Christian values or so-called Christian values, Anyone who disagrees with them is labeled a heretic who represents the mainstream values of liberal secular humanism. Hill argues that Confederates were, quote, uncompromising defenders of Christian orthodoxy. And he also says that the Confederate flag remains a symbol of Christianity and Western civilization. Opposition to the Confederate States of America, he says, is a rejection of Christianity motivated by the forces of secularism and globalism. They view the South as a Christian nation under threat, and thus the League of the South views their cause as, of course, hugely important. And just to give you an example of what kind of people we're dealing with here, League of the South Michael Hill stated emphatically in 2016 in his so-called Pledge of Allegiance the following, quote, So, in direct contradiction to the politically correct dictates of the current day, I pledge to be a white supremacist, a racist, an anti-Semite, a homophobe, a xenophobe, an Islamophobe, and any other sort of phobe that benefits my people, so help me God, end quote. Now let's take a look at Stephen Wilkins. Before we get into the book, we need to take a somewhat closer look at Doug Wilson's co-author, Stephen Wilkins. Author and neo-Confederate clergy, Steve Wilkins, who at one time served as the director, and was on the board member of the League of the South, as one of the most prominent figures in the neo-Confederate movement today. He's a member of the Presbyterian Church of America, and was, I'm not sure if he's still there, He's the resident instructor at the R.L. Dabney Center for Theological Studies out of Monroe, Louisiana, as well as serving as the pastor of the Church of the Redeemer, located also in Monroe. He writes articles for almost all journals advancing neo-Confederate and Christian nationalist ideals. According to Sebesta and Haig, in their article, Wilkins has interpreted, quote, the historical development of the United States as following a heretical trajectory that culminated in the defeat of the Christian Confederate states in the Civil War, end quote. Wilkins's assertion is that the true cause of the Civil War was not over slavery, instead it was down to theological incompatibility between the North and the South because the North rejected biblical Calvinism. He goes on to argue that the war was a true revolution because it represented a breaking up and overthrowing of the values of Western civilization that the South represented. Beyond merely attempting to destroy the institution of slavery, he argues, the North aimed to destroy Southern culture itself. 
Wilkins also believes that the 14th Amendment, which was ratified in 1868, trampled the rights of the states underfoot and created an overly powerful and unconstitutional federal government. By freeing the slaves and therefore guaranteeing of the rights of all citizens, it means that federal rather than state governments protected its citizens. Writing for the Chalcedon Presbyterian Church, Wilkins also promoted the notion that various Confederate officers were, quote, ideal examples of Christian masculinity, end quote, who should serve as role models for good Christian boys and men of today. So straight away, we can see that Wilkins has long pushed elements of the lost cause mythology as well as the theological war thesis. As we already know by now, Wilson and Wilkins collaborated together to produce in 1996 Southern Slavery as it was. And in my mind, it's just an absolute mystery to me why in the world would Doug Wilson want to partner up with a known neo-Confederate who has long been accused of being a racist and other things, but the disturbing conclusion may end up being that Wilson, in fact, has no problem with Wilkins's view. But as we'll see later, Wilson offers up one clue in his book, Black and Tan. He labels himself a paleo-confederate, whatever that means, so it seems he's not averse to lumping himself at least somewhat into that camp. In the book, as we'll see in a minute, the authors argue that the word of God itself, together with Orthodox Christianity, are under unrelenting assault by the corrupting forces of things like LGBTQ rights, feminism, and legalized abortion, as well as gay marriage. Sebesta and Haig state that, quote, to shield Christianity from these perceived threats, Wilson and Wilkins utilize a theological analysis that leads them to simultaneously build an argument that defends slavery as biblically justified, end quote. Now let's get into Doug Wilson and Stephen Wilkins' 1996 book, Southern Slavery as It Was. Let's take a close look at this thing. That last comment, I think, by Sebastian Haig reveals the core thesis of the book. Weirdly, then, their defense of Southern slave owning arose due to their consternation about gains made in progressive values in American society, such as LGBTQ, reproductive, and women's rights. They take issue with the role of the Bible, as they read it anyway, and how it plays into the whole debate. As the book begins, the authors present a simple, black-and-white, stark choice facing their readers. On the one hand, they should either believe the lie they've been told about slavery that has been advanced by liberal historians, or on the other hand, embrace the truth. Thus, right off the bat, straight away, the reader is treated to conspiracy theory thinking. Liberal historians don't want you to know the truth about slavery. But what exactly is the truth? As I lay out their argument, note how many elements in their book parrot the lost cause mythology, the theological war thesis stuff that we talked about earlier. According to Wilson and Wilkins, first, the practice of slavery was actually beneficial to the slaves. Two, for the most part, slaves had it pretty easy and actually enjoyed their labors. And three, that because most Southern slave owners treated their slaves according to biblical teachings, the slaves enjoyed a simple, happy life that most of them were saddened to see pass away after the Civil War. So right away we can see that they are drawing on elements of the lost cause mythology. So therefore, on one level, Wilson and Wilkins' argument is nothing new. It's nothing we haven't heard already, as we've seen. Rather, it's merely a parroting of a mythologized reading of the South's role in the war, as well as a revisionist reading of history regarding why the South lost the war. Listen, for example, to one of the opening paragraphs of the book. 
Wilson and Wilkins lament the fact that because the Civil War ended so abruptly, and since then Southerners have been unable to argue their case, a lot of misunderstanding has arisen around which side was right. Note, however, they immediately start chipping away at the received tradition of slavery as related by historians. However, they do acknowledge there were some issues with the institution when they ask rhetorically, quote, how could men have supported slavery? The question is especially difficult when we consider that these were men who lived in a pervasively Christian culture. We have all heard of the heartlessness, the brutalities, and that's exactly how it's spelled in the book. I think they mean to say brutalities. But anyway, immoralities and cruelties that were supposedly inherent in the system of slavery. We have heard how slave families were broken up, of the forcible rape of slave women, of the brutal beatings that were a commonplace, about the horrible living conditions, and of the unrelenting work schedule and back-breaking routine, all of which go together to form our impression of the crushing oppression which was slavery in the South. The truthfulness of this description has seldom been challenged. And they go on to say, The point of this small booklet is to establish that this impression is largely false. It is important to note, however, that the impression is not entirely false. The truth is, Southern slavery is open to criticism because it did not follow the biblical pattern at every point. Some of the state laws regulating slavery could not be defended biblically. The laws forbidding the teaching of reading and writing, for example. They conclude by saying, one cannot defend the abuse some slaves had to endure. None can excuse the immorality some masters and overseers indulged in with some slave women. The separation of families that sometimes occurred was deplorable. These were sad realities in the Southern system, end quote. So straight out of the gate, the authors challenged the commonly accepted impression that in the main, the Southern slave-owning system involved, in their words, crushing oppression of the unfortunate slaves. That impression, they argue, is largely false, but not entirely false. They maintain that the only reason that Southern slavery was open to criticism was because it did not follow the biblical pattern at every point. But what if it had followed the biblical pattern? Would that have been good? Would God have blessed it? Well, thus we can see right away that they're laying the groundwork for why the South lost the war. It wasn't due to slavery, per se, as a moral evil. No, it was that white Southern slave owners didn't treat their slaves according to the biblical pattern. From the episodes on this that I did with David Johnson, we already established that the Bible clearly condones slavery, both in the Old and New Testament. It's here that the authors begin to rely on the work of not just theologians like Rush Dooney, who argued that biblical slavery in the Old Testament, he says, you know what, it really wasn't about chattel slavery, it was actually more of a form of indentured servitude. They also begin to construct their thesis using the work of 19th century Southern slavery apologists, and most tellingly, they rely on R.L. Dabney. Dr. Robert McKenzie, who's a Christian historian from Wheaton College in Illinois, he engaged with Wilson and Wilkins right away when the book first came out. From his point of view, as both a professional historian and an evangelical Christian, he believed the book to be a gross misrepresentation and misinterpretation of the true history of Southern slavery. Additionally, their defense of slavery revealed a larger issue. The reality is that the authors engage in a literalistic reading of the Bible in their attempt to win the so-called culture wars. The book, therefore, is really not just about defending slavery from the Bible, 
It's a defense of the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture that's really at stake here. This is the bigger picture behind why the authors felt compelled to take on the issue of Southern slave owning in the first place. In an article taking Wilson and Wilkins to task for their sloppy and irresponsible historiography, Mackenzie summarized the issue succinctly when he asked, quote, Why is it of such paramount importance to know the truth about Southern slavery? Wilson and Wilkins answer by sharing anecdotes of public debates in which liberals dismissed arguments against homosexuality or abortion by observing that the Bible condoned slavery. The implicit argument in such retorts was that, because slavery is evil and the Bible allows for slavery, then the Bible is obviously an unreliable moral guide, reminding us that Christians must never, quote, be embarrassed by any portion of the Word of God, and that's quoting from the book. The pastors then make an utterly illogical leap, he says. They seek to defend the Scripture's apparent allowance of slavery by defending the treatment of slaves in the American South. He concludes by saying the author's justification is an egregious non-sequitur. The entire argument of Southern slavery as it was is unnecessary and irrelevant to their stated objective, end quote. McKenzie's astute observation reveals why Wilson and Wilkins tie their argument defending slavery to such issues as homosexuality, women's rights, or feminism, and abortion. Viewing themselves as culture warriors, they believe it's their duty to defend the truths of the Bible and fight against these evils in the public square. But one has to wonder what sort of a world would we be living in if extremists like Wilson and Wilkins had their way. I think we'd be living in a patriarchal, theocratic kingdom of some sort, which is in many ways a fascist and anti-democratic regime, which is really the regime under which the southern slaves lived. They had little to no rights in how they were treated, no appeals process to protest injustices done to them, no say in how they were sold to other white owners, families and marriages broken up, their punishments they received, and so forth. Beyond the historiography, the authors are also guilty of sloppy academic work. I mentioned this before, but in the episode I did on the many scandals attached to Doug Wilson, I noted there the blatant plagiarism which pervades the book, about 20% of which was lifted from Ingerman and Fogel's 1974 work, Time on the Cross. I'll talk about this in a bit later, but this was but one of the issues that led Cannon Press to pull the book from the shelves. Supporting, however, their line of argumentation that slavery in the South was biblical and therefore justified, the authors conclude the book with a line about how the North's atheistic and aggressive war against the godly South was problematic because it essentially represented government overreach or statism. Not only is this another example of their dependence on lost cause and theological war thesis mythology, it also echoes Rush Dooney's earlier argument about statism. His line of reasoning was that the government, by assuming a messianic role in society, therefore usurps God's rightful place as ruler over the nation. The North's atheistic, aggressive, and unwarranted war on the godly South was not only unjustified, after the war, it set up a much more secular government. Ironically, however, as I've mentioned already, Southern slave owning was itself a form of fascism. As I mentioned, the slaves had basically no rights. So what made it such a great system? The Southern Presbyterian pastors and theologians who supported and defended the practice of slavery prior to the American Civil War not only trod underfoot the basic human rights of African-American slaves, they cited Bible verse after Bible verse to bolster their reasoning in support of the institution of slavery. 
but they also had another agenda. Their arguments about what we would today call government overreach on the part of the atheistic North starting the war against the godly and Christian South represented the taking of a stand against Christianity itself. As we've seen, therefore, this is where the notion of the theological war thesis began. The other element in play in this discussion is the issue of patriarchy, which I've mentioned already, in the view of Wilson and Wilkins, which echoes what the antebellum pro-slavery Christians argued, preserving the God-ordained order of the family was hugely important. This argument included slavery as something God had established millennia ago in terms of certain so-called, quote, inferior and superior races. This goes all the way back to the argument, the, the curse of Ham from the Old Testament story of Noah. That's been around for centuries now. It also sets up the role of women as the helpmeet of men in the context of a godly and therefore patriarchal family system. In the modern era, any threat to this divine order, such as women's rights, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights, or even the mixing of races, were interpreted as posing serious threats to American Christian culture. Theologians like Rush Dooney, during the 1960s and 70s counterculture revolution, seized on this argument, originally advanced in the pre-war South, and applied it to what they perceived as major threats to the divine order for society. Progressive gains threatened the family, which in turn would disrupt, distort, and destroy God's plans for humanity and threaten the notion of Christians taking dominion over the world. In their book, Wilson and Wilkins immediately tie in such hot-button topics as gay rights, abortion, and women's rights into their argument concerning slavery. In the introductory chapter, for example, they lay out their reasoning for why such a booklet needed to be written in the first place. Just like Rush Dooney did decades earlier, they also begin with the counterculture revolution of the 1960s and 70s and how that all relates to Christian nationalism and slavery. They state, quote, In the mid-70s, American evangelicals began to wake up to the fact that our culture was beginning to tumble down around our ears. In 1973, the Supreme Court had ruled that it was unconstitutional for the various states to outlaw the dismemberment of the unborn, end quote. The wholesale killing of millions of unborn babies since that time, they argue, with the passing of Roe v. Wade in 1973, plunged American Christians into a culture war for which they were woefully and inadequately prepared. The real issue, they argue, soon became clear. Evangelicals suffered from a lack of historical perspective. Wilson and Wilkins go on to tie this historic ruling together with slavery when they state, quote, the first was the result of the attempt by evangelicals to portray the pro-life movement as a modern form of abolitionism. We were taught that earlier Christian social reformers, like Charles Finney, were ardent abolitionists and we pro-lifers were walking in their footsteps. We were taught that Roe v. Wade was comparable to the Dred Scott decision, and so we argued and talked and marched accordingly. The only problem was, it wasn't true. For the sake of a convenient argument against the monstrosity of abortion, we abandon the clear teaching of the Bible on another subject, how slavery was to be understood, end quote. It's immediately clear that for Wilson and Wilkins, biblical teachings on abortion are inextricably tied to what it says about slavery, too. Hermeneutically, they are essentially arguing that if the Bible supports slavery, that's not necessarily a problem at all. To be consistent with their biblically literal hermeneutic, as a corollary, one must condemn homosexuality as, quote, sodomy. They hold that homosexuality, and we know that Wilson views homosexuality as a sinful lifestyle choice, 
He says it's prohibited in the Bible's legal codes. The law of Moses called for the death penalty for men and women having same-sex relations. On this subject, the book goes on to relate an interesting little anecdote. The authors state that, quote, One time a man was handing out tracts at a gay and lesbian dance. Those attending the dance did not appear to be pleased, and someone apparently called a liberal Methodist pastor to come and deal with him. He came down, and in the course of the discussion, the Christian said that Leviticus condemns homosexuality as an abomination. The liberal pastor responded by saying, yes, but the Old Testament allowed for slavery. The Christian responded by saying, yes, it certainly did. So what's your point? End quote. In other words, to be consistent with their literal reading of the Bible, this is their view. Homosexuality is condemned by the Bible. Slavery is condoned by the Bible. For the biblical literalist, it is therefore consistent to believe in both and accordingly support both views. It's also interesting to note that the Christian man in the story was most likely none other than Pastor Doug Wilson himself, although he hides behind anonymity in the book. In a 2016 article in the Moscow Pullman Daily News, staff writer Josh Babcock investigated how some of the LGBTQ residents of the Palouse region, that's where Moscow and Pullman, Washington are, they've historically been treated. The article was titled, quote, Palouse Area Mostly Accepting But Not Immune to Hate. He interviewed Kelly Sprague, and she's a Moscow native who's been organizing drag shows there for over 20 years. She has, he reported, experienced some of the worst the area has to offer, including receiving death threats when she ran for city council in 1993. Sprague recounted a very interesting encounter when she told Babcock how, quote, she still remembers an incident in 1994 after anti-gay legislation was proposed in Idaho. She said members of Christ Church and its pastor, Doug Wilson, showed up outside a gay dance and displayed anti-gay signs, one of which read, AIDS Inoculation Center, end quote. Somehow, therefore, homosexuality, or sodomy, as the book titles it, and chattel, race-based slavery, became inextricably intertwined in Wilson's mind, even all those decades ago. You can read the entire article, which is archived on the helpful site, MoscowID.net. I just thought it was interesting that the anecdote related in the book involved most likely Doug Wilson himself, that he felt the need to picket a gay dance, along with members from his church, along with homophobic signs, reveals, I think, a lot about Wilson and where he's coming from on this subject. Similar to the alleged sin of homosexuality, Wilson and Wilkins likewise view abortion as committing murder, which is, in their view is a violation of the biblical commandment, thou shalt not kill. That interpretation, I think that's fairly common among most pro-life evangelicals. Finally, though, they see feminism as an overturning of the women's place in the home, thus violating the godly order of the family. So when you take all three of those views together, all three of the items are interpreted as destroying, or at the very least, corrupting the sphere of the family. Same-sex marriage goes against God's design for, quote, normal heterosexual marriage. Abortion kills a child that will never grow up in a loving, godly family. And finally, feminism distorts the godly, biblical design for a patriarchal marriage in which the wife joyfully submits to her husband's servant leadership as unto the Lord. Now, as an extension, we've already noted in other episodes that Wilson argues this idea that feminism has also had a corrosive effect not just on the family, but on God's design for male leadership over churches. In the episode I did on Wilson's patriarchy, 
he maintains very clearly that it's only men who should serve as pastors and leaders of churches, absolutely not women at all, which would be a violation of what he sees as the very clear teaching of the Apostle Paul's subject in the New Testament. Considering these disturbing realities, the authors argue that if Christians don't follow their literalist line of biblical interpretation, then they are guilty of denigrating the infallible Word of God in its apparently clear teachings on these subjects. As they see it, it's the old slippery slope argument, denying any part of the Bible as infallible and inspired and errant and all that, leads inexorably to the crumbling of the whole edifice. No tiny crack must be allowed. Take the entire thing as inspired, infallible, and inerrant, or the Christian has no basis for the Bible serving as the authoritative foundation for all of life, faith, beliefs, and practice. Appeals to the historical context of biblical passages as something perhaps not relevant for today's culture. They would view that as presenting a major threat too because it denigrates the Bible's applicability for current life. Wilson and Wilkins proceed to lay out their argument as follows related to any Christian who denies the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. They state that, quote, if those who hate the Word of God can succeed in getting Christians to be embarrassed by any portion of the Word of God, then that portion will continually be employed as a battering ram against the godly principles that are currently under attack. In our day, three of the principal issues are abortion, feminism, and sodomy. If we respond to the embarrassing parts of Scripture by saying, well, that was then, this is now, we will quickly discover that liberals can play that game even more effectively than embarrassed conservatives. Paul prohibited eldership to women? That was then, this is now. Moses condemned sodomy? That was then, this is now. End quote. Thus, for the authors, the issue about slavery and the Bible's teachings on it represent a far greater danger should scriptural teachings be questioned or dismissed by pointing to its historical context. And looming above all the controversial issues like gay rights, abortion, women's rights, women's reproductive rights, and so forth, is the much larger problem of the role of the government overseeing it all. As they see it, an ungodly government will pass laws that are progressive, but these all militate against the godly order of the family. So one can see why, from their point of view, it's so important to have some type of Christian form of government that passes laws consistent with a so-called biblical worldview. One can also see why such a program would also be consistent with forms of dominion theology and Christian nationalism. For the Christian, therefore, it's incumbent to elect the right sort of candidates to run the nation and pass the right sort of laws. Wilson and Wilkins tie these issues all together and relate them all to slavery when they go on to claim, quote, in a certain sense, we are backing into an informed discussion of the war between the states. You've been told many times that the war was over slavery, but in reality, it was over the biblical meaning of constitutional government. The inflammatory issue is slavery, however, and so the real issue is obscured in the minds of many, end quote. Hey, I'm Rachel. A few years ago, I stepped away from my religious background. I had a lot of anger and a lot to say about evangelicalism and all the shitty parts of it. So I started a podcast to work through it and to feel less alone. A year into it, I asked my cousin-in-law to join the journey. And I said, yes, I'm Molly, co-host to the show. Turns out we had a lot more in common than just being in the same family. We were both raised in evangelical house churches in the 90s and 2000s. Talk about culty. We were homeschooled 
culty. <laughs> and we both left religion behind about eight years ago. So now we get together every other week and talk about the nitty gritty that happens when you leave religion. Everything from how to set healthy boundaries with religious family members, theology, hell, heaven, Paul, and how to recognize and heal from religious trauma. This podcast is our healing process, and we're hopeful that sharing our stories, other people's stories, and what we learn along the way may help others heal too. Religion leaves a mark on everyone it touches. Sometimes that mark isn't always positive. Cheers to Leaving is the perfect podcast for anyone who's questioning their faith or looking to connect with others who have been there. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So grab a drink and join us as we say, cheers to leaving. Thus, they argue, the only reason they're discussing slavery in the first place is that the dangers posed by government overreach, the assault on traditional family values, and any assorted attacks on the church and the infallible word of God essentially forces them to have to defend the practice of slavery. If we look at it from a theonomist perspective, I think they would say that the best society is one that's governed by biblical law, some form of theocracy. That, in their view, the Bible both supports and affirms slavery, provided that slave owners treat their slaves in accordance with biblical teaching, that does not present a problem at all. In a theocracy, the minority rules over the majority, and their interpretation of biblical law is enforced not by them, but by the state. But this is nothing more than textbook fascism, where the minority rules over the majority, and they use undemocratic means to get their way. Now, I don't want to spend too much more time on the book itself, but it's worth pointing out the areas where the authors draw from elements of the theological war thesis and or lost cause mythology. I want to end this section on the book. I want to take a look at a couple of areas. First of all, let's see how they portray the North as ungodly and the South as godly. The authors lay out their case by arguing, quote, in the early 19th century, the intellectual leadership of the North apostatized from their previous cultural commitment to the Christian faith. The watershed event in this regard was the capture of Harvard by the Unitarians in 1805. This cultural apostasy was not nearly as advanced in the South, although there were some signs of it. They say, by the time of the war, the intellectual leadership of the South was conservative, orthodox, and Christian. In contrast, the leadership of the North was radical and Unitarian. This is not to say that there were no Christians in the North or that no believers fought for the North. It is simply the recognition that the drums of war were being beaten by the abolitionists who were in turn driven by a zealous hatred of the word of God, end quote. They also go on to maintain, I mentioned this before, that due to a revival among the Confederate troops during the war, was, quote, so widespread that it has been estimated that, with the possible exception of Cromwell's army, the Confederate army was the largest body of evangelicals under arms in the history of the world, end quote. The second thing is they want to talk about why the South lost the war. Now, they cite R.L. Dabney. We already looked at him. He was the Southern Presbyterian slavery apologist, whom they claim was a, quote, godly man who fought for the South. Now, Dabney's reason for explaining why the South lost the war, well, he says it was because it was under the judgment of God. Judgment for what exactly? Slavery? Racism? No. Although both of those items, they admit, were present in the South. The authors state that it was currents of unbelief present in the South, not slavery, that led to God judging them. They maintained that, quote, although the South was correct about the central issues of that war, 
Southern diehards must learn the hard lessons of Habakkuk, who had to accept that God can use an ungodly nation to judge another nation which is not as bad, Habakkuk 1.13. In other words, in his divine providence, as the authors see it, God saw fit to use an ungodly nation, the North, to judge a godly nation, the South. It was the fact that the South, despite the Christianizing influence of many a devout believer, fell unfortunately short of the godly ideal for slave-owning. That is what led to it losing the war. The authors remind us that one could, in both New Testament times in the antebellum South, be a faithful Christian and a member of a church in good standing, and still own slaves. Number three, they talk about the differences between slave-owning and the slave trade. I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but it's worth noting that the author, again following Dabney's line of reasoning, argue that it wasn't a sin to own slaves. What was sinful, they claimed, was the practice of man-stealing, in other words, the kidnapping of Africans. Southern slave owners, they argued, opposed that, but saw it as morally fine to own slaves once they were transported to their shores. The authors go on to state that, quote, the slave trade was an abomination, and all who believe the Bible are bound to do the same. Owning slaves is not an abomination. The Bible does not condemn it, and those who believe the Bible are bound to refrain in the same way. But if we were to look in history for Christians who reflected this biblical balance, i.e. a hatred of the slave trade and an acceptance of slavery itself under certain conditions, we will find ourselves looking at the antebellum South. Quote. Note how the authors carefully parsed the differences and ultimately laid the blame on someone else for the evil. The slave traders themselves, who were they claim mostly northerners, not the southern slave owners, how ironic they argue that the blame has historically gone to the south for slave owning, which the Bible condones, but not to northern slave trading, which, of course, the Bible condemns. Fourth, let's take a look at how they talk about the realities of slave life. Now we can clearly focus on exactly how Wilson and Wilkins promote the lost cause myth of the so-called happy slave. Beyond their uncritical acceptance of Dabney, the authors cite a certain Judge George L. Christian who gave an address in 1907 to surviving Southern Civil War veterans. Looking back fondly on the antebellum South, Christian pronounced that, quote, in the first place, slavery, as it existed in the South, was patriarchal in its character. The slaves, servants as we called them, were regarded and treated as members of the families to which they severally belonged. With rare exceptions, they were treated with kindness and consideration, and frequently the relations between the slave and his owner were those of real affection and confidence. End quote. According to Judge Christian, slaves weren't really slaves, they were just servants. And note how he describes the practice of slavery as patriarchal, as if that was a good thing. And now we come to one of the most controversial quotes from the book, which many critics have latched onto in order to demonstrate how Wilson and Wilkins defend slavery. The authors state unequivocally, quote, slavery as it existed in the South was not an adversarial relationship with pervasive racial animosity. Because of its dominantly patriarchal character, it was a relationship based on mutual affection and confidence. There has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. The credit for this must go to the predominance of Christianity. 
The gospel enabled men who were distinct in nearly every way to live and work together to be friends and often intimates. This happened to such an extent that moderns indoctrinated on civil rights propaganda would be thunderstruck to know the half of it, end quote. Southern plantation life, they claim, was amazingly benign. There was a sense of unmistakable devotion between slave owners and slaves. The authors claim that slaves were, in reality, treated with kindness and gentleness by their masters, and that after the war, many a slave expressed a wistful desire to return to the old plantation life. They go on to assert that, quote, slave life to them was a life of plenty, of simple pleasures of food, clothes, and good medical care. In the narratives taken as a whole, there is no pervasive cry of rage and anguish, end quote. Therefore, in their estimation, all of this is more evidence, yet again, that white slave owners treated their slaves according to the biblical injunctions for how owners were to treat their slaves, and the result, predictably, was happy slaves. While they do admit there were instances when masters treated their slaves abominably, these were rare. They were few and far between. And then lastly, we'll talk about how they argue that slaves benefited from the introduction of Christianity. Now, we saw earlier that R.L. Dabney and others advanced the cause that it was to the slaves' benefit that they were introduced to Christianity. This was a major blessing. Many other pro-slavery Christian apologists advanced the same line of reasoning. Wilson and Wilkins do the same when they explain, under the heading Unexpected Blessing, that there were several blessings because of slavery experienced by both blacks and whites alike. They make the claim that, quote, first was the influence of Christianity. More than one slave lived to thank God for his servitude, despite all the hardships involved. More than one former slave had reason to stand in the place of the biblical Joseph and say, men meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The slavery they were delivered from was far worse than any they suffered in this country, end quote. And it just goes on and on. I can't deal with much more of Wilson and Wilkins. They go on to cover such topic as the treatment of slaves, and they claim they were only whipped when they deserved it, and it was very rare. Slaves actually had a very high standard of living. They talk about the stability of the slave family, and they claim that almost no slave families or marriages were broken up and, you know, people were sold to other places by their masters. No, that never barely ever happened. They talk about the myth of slave breeding. They say, no, that's the slave owners by and large did not engage in selective breeding among slaves. They talked about sexual exploitation. They say, no, no, most white slave owners really didn't sexually abuse their female slaves. They talk about the living conditions. I mean, the slaves had a very high standard of living and, and on and on the argument goes. In addition to being introduced to Christianity by their white masters, Wilson and Wilkins claim, you know, there was a second unexpected blessing that resulted from the slave trade. They go on to make the absurd assertion that, quote, slavery produced in the South a genuine affection between the races that we believe we can say has never existed in any nation before the war or since. Whatever its failures, slavery produced in the South a degree of mutual affection between the races which will never be achieved through any federally mandated efforts, end quote. As they see it then, any government-led effort to unify the races is doomed to failure. So what's their solution? What, what, what should we do instead? Go back and return to Southern slave-owning practices? From their point of view, apparently that was the best time ever for black slaves. So returning to that 
will surely unify the races just like it did before the Civil War. Finally, the authors conclude their book by stating that, quote, none need lament the passing of slavery, but who cannot but lament the damage to both white and black that has occurred as a consequence of the way it was abolished? We are forced to say that in many ways, the remedy which has been applied has been far worse than the disease ever was, end quote. In other words, as the authors see it, the heretical North's unjustified war of aggression on the godly slave-owning South was clearly the wrong way to solve the problem, if indeed, in their view, it was even a problem at all. Let's now conclude this really long episode by taking a look at Doug Wilson's book, Black and Tan. In the decades since Southern slavery as it was was pulled from the shelves, many of Wilson's fiercest critics have labeled him a racist. We've noted earlier, you know, why team up with a guy like Steve Wilkins in the first place? He's a known neo-Confederate. He's, he's labeled been a racist and all the rest of it. The question we must ask, therefore, is this. Has Doug Wilson retracted his earlier position as laid out? We've just seen it in Southern slavery as it was. Perhaps predictably, the answer appears to be no. In typical Wilsonian fashion, he's only doubled down and obfuscated his position. He's labeled his detractors as intoleristas blogger Libby Ann in a 2015 Patheos article discussing the book Southern Slavery as it was points out that, quote, over the years since publishing Southern Slavery as it was, Wilson has often claimed that critics have misunderstood or misinterpreted his words. Indeed, he has generally refused to engage with such critics entirely, insisting that they are arguing in bad faith, end quote. In classic Wilsonian fashion, he tries to distinguish himself from neo-Confederates like Stephen Wilkins by calling himself, as we saw earlier, a paleo-confederate. But he doesn't really elaborate on that term in the book Black and Tan. However, in an interview on canonwire.com, Wilson once did explain what a paleo-confederate is. He stated that, quote, a paleo-confederate says, look, I think that Lincoln was a centralizer. I think that the post-war amendments to the Constitution inverted the meaning of the Constitution. Before the war, the Constitution placed restrictions on the power of the federal government. After the war, those amendments became means by which the federal government suppressed the power of the state, end quote. We just heard that same sentiment in the closing statements of Southern slavery as it was, that the way in which the war was prosecuted and how it ended was the, entirely the wrong way to go about it. Thus, for Wilson, it's not about trying to fight the Civil War all over again, like he thinks the neo-Confederates want to do. As he sees it, the ending of the war was disastrous as the federal government suppressed states' rights and issued in a series of progressive gains, such as Roe v. Wade legalizing same-sex marriage and advancing women's rights and reproductive rights. Such was the legacy of the godless North in defeating the godly South in an unjust and unjustified war of aggression. When the South was defeated, he claims, that was the end of a true Christian nation. Essentially, then, over the decades, Wilson has consistently argued that his critics have misread or misunderstood him. But from what I can tell, in the main, he still holds essentially to the same thesis as laid out in Southern Slavery as it was, only slightly more refined and expanded in his 2005 work, Black and Tan. This time, however, it has a veneer of academic respectability that the first work sorely lacked. I've already mentioned that a major concern was the rampant plagiarism taken from Engelmann and Fogel's 1974 work Time on the Cross, for which Wilkins took all the blame, and thus Wilson got off scot-free. It's worth pointing out that 
This was not the only time Wilson has been accused of plagiarism in his works, but it did, as I mentioned, lead to Canon Press being forced to pull the book from the shelves, and this must have been a source of some humiliation for Wilson, since he takes pride in passing himself off as an intellectual, a theologian, a biblical scholar, an author, and an academic. It seems to me that his rejigging of Southern slavery as it was, and turning it into black and tan, was in some way his effort to legitimize the original work, and on the face of it, correct its earlier mistakes, but not walk back really any of its major problematic claims. As I've already mentioned, one of elements of Wilson's strategy for black and tan was to enlist the aid of a supposedly objective and respected historian, Eugene Genovese, and have him provide academic respectability for the book. Now, Genovese did so by perusing the manuscript and offering up suggestions and changes. He therefore served as a sort of editor for the work prior to its publication. As we noted earlier, Genovese also wrote a glowing endorsement of the book for its cover, but from my point of view, his endorsement of the book ultimately fails, and it clearly demonstrates his own biases. I read it once before earlier, but it's worth reading again because his words, I think now that we've gone through Southern slavery as it was, are quite revealing. Genovese wrote for the cover of Black and Tan the following words, quote, The Reverend Douglas Wilson may not be a professional historian, as his detractors say, but he has a strong grasp of the essentials of the history of slavery and its relation to Christian doctrine. Indeed, sad to say, his grasp is a great deal stronger than that of most professors of American history, whose distortions and trivializations disgrace our college classrooms. And the Reverend Mr. Wilson is a fighter, especially effective in defense of Christianity against those who try to turn Jesus's way of salvation into pseudo-moralistic drivel, end quote. Let's take a look at this thing. On the one hand, he freely admits that Doug Wilson is not a professional historian, as rightly pointed out by his detractors. But on the other hand, Genovese asserts that Wilson's strong grasp of the history of slavery and how it relates to Christian doctrine are actually better. They're superior to that of most professors of American history. And that's just beyond a bit of a stretch, isn't it? That claim is bad enough. But then next comes the conspiracy theory-laden language as Genovese accuses these so-called experts of distorting and trivializing the true nature of the history of slavery and thus of disgracing America's college classrooms. That's an extravagant and arrogant claim, painting with a very wide brush indeed. It's a false accusation of historical corruption on the part of professional historians and teachers of history in American colleges and universities. Ultimately, though, Genovese, I think, gives the game away entirely when he praises Wilson for being a fighter who ably defends Christianity. Defending it from what exactly? defending the truth from, in his words, quote, those who try to turn Jesus's way of salvation into pseudo-moralistic drivel, end quote. The last line finally reveals all of Genovese's biases and shows him to be nothing more than an unreliable expert in the end. He was already undone, I think, by his own over-the-top endorsement of Wilson's bogus historian's credentials, but what gives the game away entirely is his out-of-hand dismissal of real historians, and finally, his condescending view of apparently liberal Christians, I guess, who have a different perspective on Jesus's alleged way of salvation, different, that is, from the gospel to which he and Wilson clearly adhere. But it's worth pointing out that Wilson's fans admire him for being that fighter type that Genovese claims he is. He's willing to say controversial things, all in the name of his version of the gospel. Just go to any of Doug Wilson's 
talks on YouTube, on the Canon Press stuff. Read some of the comments by the fanboys. It's unbelievable how they admire and love Doug Wilson. So how does Doug Wilson defend himself now following the firestorm of controversy that erupted around Southern slavery as it was? I've already mentioned this in the episode on Wilson's many scandals, but if you haven't heard it, basically here's what happened. I'll just do a little recap. In late 2003, Wilson and Wilkins announced a conference covering their book, which was to be held at the University of Idaho in Moscow. Flyers were distributed around the area, announcing the upcoming event to be held in February of 2004, and it was billed as a chance to meet the authors. Ironically, though, the publicity generated around the event ended up backfiring on Wilson. Rather than helping his cause, all it did was to raise awareness of the repulsive, racist, and historically revisionist nature of Southern slavery as it was. Thanks to the work of people like Mark Potok, uh, he was working for the Southern Poverty Law Center at the time, it also brought Steve Wilkins's association with the Neo-Confederate League of the South into greater public attention. Potok commented in a 2004 article on the Southern Poverty Law Center site that, quote, in the months that followed, sparked by the flyers anonymously distributed by anti-racist activists, an uproar erupted that convulsed the campus, the town, and even the community around Washington State University, another huge school some eight miles away in Pullman, Washington. Before it was over, the presidents of both universities had condemned Wilson and Wilkins's book in unsparing terms, dozens of newspaper articles, editorials, advertisements, and letters to the editor had been printed, major demonstrations had been held, new anti-racist groups had formed, and a whole array of counter-events had been organized for the Wilson-Wilkins event, end quote. And as we've already noted, partly due to the firestorm of controversy that this so-called history conference caused, the greater attention paid to the book by historians who were experts on antebellum slavery, as well as its plagiarism, Canon Press pulled the book from publication. Wilson, as I've already mentioned, would later rehash the book with, of course, the editorial assistance of Eugene Genovese, retitle it and release it in 2005 as Black and Tan. But once again, we need to ask the question, has he recanted from the original claims as laid out in Southern slavery as it was? Did he admit he was wrong, factually and historically incorrect, or indeed a racist? Does Black and Tan finally set the record straight on Wilson's abhorrent views? Well, Libby Ann, in that Patheos article I mentioned a bit ago, answers the questions in the conclusion of her post with an emphatic no. She asks rhetorically, quote, So where does this leave us? Wilson argues that black people have been just as motivated by racial hatred as white people and traces this animosity to the Civil War, which he paints as the source of all things evil. Wilson says that slavery was better for blacks than pagan Africa had been and that blacks were safer under slavery than they are today because abortion has rendered the black womb a dangerous place for a child. She concludes by saying, Southern slavery was not evil, he says, and once again he calls abolitionists liars and argues that slavery was relatively benign. Wilson further says that black culture was inferior to the culture of the antebellum South and that the South was less racist than the North and so Christian that it can be termed the last nation of the first Christendom. And she says at the end, therefore, rather than taking back anything he said in Southern slavery as it was, Wilson instead adds to it arguing that blacks are just as guilty of racism as whites, that black culture was inferior, and that blacks were better off in slavery than they were in pagan Africa, end quote. Therefore, it seems that for Wilson, nothing has truly changed in terms of his worldview 
and his revisionist reading of history. Well, how has he defended himself in the intervening years? It's interesting to note in a blog post on his site in 2005, he was previewing the release of Black and Tan, and Wilson made the following statement by way of a defense. He said, quote, Last year, when the slavery booklet flap was at its height and the booklet itself was out of print, I said that the material was going to be released in revised form. Well, that form has grown into a small book, and the day of publication draweth nigh. The title of the book is Black and Tan, and is, quote, a collection of essays and excursions on slavery, culture, war, and scripture in America. He concludes by saying, the original Southern Slavery as it was booklet is now about half its original length and is just one chapter in the book, end quote. Just at the outset, then, it's clear that Wilson does not disavow himself from the original content as laid out in Southern Slavery as it was. He concludes that blog post by bragging about how he had sought out historian Eugene Genovese for help with the manuscripts. Of course, there'd be rabid critics, you know, those leftist intoleristas, who would once again try to take him to task for his latest effort on slavery. What follows in the blog post is what I stated above, the glowing endorsement of the book by Genovese. So it would appear that Wilson has not retracted anything from the original book, only now, with black and tan, he's teamed up with a so-called expert on antebellum slavery to set the record straight once again. And of course, Genovese provides that veneer of academic respectability. It's also interesting to note that in 1994, two noteworthy events took place. One, Doug Wilson founded the New St. Andrews College in Moscow. Two, Professor Michael Hill founded the Neo-Confederate League of the South in Alabama. But are there any connections between these two organizations? On the face of it, the answer would clearly be no. But Mark Potok points out that NSAC, New St. Andrews College, treats both R.L. Dabney and R.J. Rushdoony as, quote, foundational thinkers on the order of Plato and Aristotle, end quote. He then goes on to note that, quote, Many Moscow residents say the college, like Wilson's Logos School and Christchurch, has also shown a strong taste for the Confederacy, with paintings of Civil War Confederate heroes and the like. Some parents have reported that Logos School celebrates the birthday of General Robert E. Lee, another hero in the Confederate pantheon, end quote. I mentioned a bit ago that in Black and Tan, Wilson describes himself as a paleo-Confederate, but he doesn't really elaborate on what that term means. He does make clear, however, that he is still in agreement with the basic premise behind Southern slavery as it was, that somehow Southern slave owning relates to modern-day culture wars. For example, he states the following, and note how it parrots the initial argument of Southern slavery as it was, and also relies on Christian nationalism to boot. Wilson argues in Black and Tan, for example, quote, that our nation did not remove slavery in the way it ought to have been removed helps to explain many of our nation's problems in dealing with contemporary social evils. Those evils include abortion on demand, radical feminism, and rampant sodomy. In the pursuit of our constitutional rights, we have legally executed over 40 million unborn children in this nation, and we are about to be oppressed with sodomite marriage. We have done this under the protections of the Constitution. When in our history did we take the wrong turn? that allowed the Constitution to be abused in this grotesque fashion, and that's italicized in the book. He concludes by saying, Christians need to learn to argue that the events resulting in the cataclysm of 1861-1865, the Civil War, had something to do with it, which I believe is incontrovertible, end quote. Therefore, right off the bat, 
we see that Wilson has not retreated from the antagonistic and anti-federal government stance adopted in Southern slavery as it was. Abortion, radical feminism, and sodomy, that's his homophobic description of those within the LGBTQ community, are still the big three evils facing America today. And moreover, somehow these three are intrinsically tied to the Civil War and how the South owned slaves. But what exactly is that connection? In a helpful 2021 article on the Faith Roots blog, author Dave Williams gives a good overview of the arguments behind Wilson's black and tan. Although written from a Christian point of view, Williams nonetheless makes some astute observations. He states that Wilson's thesis in black and tan involves the following three points. He notes that in the book, Wilson argues that, quote, first of all, that insofar as slavery was sinful, the sin was against God and not the state. Secondly, that the experience of slavery in the southern states was much more benign than has been claimed. Thirdly, that the Bible did allow for and regulate slavery because whilst the result of the gospel should have been a gradual ending of the slave trade and slave ownership, this was intended to be gradual and evolutionary rather than revolutionary. This means that in his view, attacks on those like Jonathan Edwards, who held slaves, and Dabney, who resisted abolition, are unfair, end quote. Already, we can see that Wilson not only echoes essentially the same argument advanced in Southern slavery as it was, but as we've already seen, he embraces elements of the lost cause mythology and the theological war thesis arguments also. It's very important to understand what motivates Wilson. What are his theological and doctrinal underpinnings that drive him to defend Southern slavery from the Bible? Although ostensibly the book, just like Southern slavery as it was, seems at first glance to be about racism and slavery, we see once again that Wilson uses that topic to defend what he sees as a biblical view of the culture wars. Just as in Southern slavery as it was, Wilson's three targets are abortion, homosexuality, or sodomy as he calls it, and feminism. But again, what are his theological underpinnings? What's the scaffolding that drives Wilson to his conclusions? Again, Williams makes some really good observations that'll help us understand where Wilson's coming from theologically and biblically. He points out that, quote, number one, he, that's Doug Wilson, is a post-millennialist who believes we should be optimist about the future because over a lengthy period of history, we can expect God's kingdom to gain ground and transform politics and culture. Two, linked to this, he believes in something called theonomism, which is the belief that as, the, as a country becomes progressively Christianized, it should conform more and more to God's law. Three, there is a strongly related view held by those from this background that we are protected against tyranny by limiting authority to specific spheres. This is part of the concept of lex rex, the rule of law. Those spheres are the family, church, and state. And finally, number four, he says, these things come together so that Wilson claims to be a confederate. In other words, he believes that the southern states were right in the American Civil War in that they were resisting the imposition of an overbearing federal government, the result of which he considers to have been the introduction of such evils as legalized abortion, end quote. All these observations give rise to the charge that Wilson here, I think, is betraying his influences on men like R.J. Rushduni and Christian Reconstructionism, who, as we already saw, was a staunch promoter of the theological war thesis. It's worth noting that Rushduni came to his conclusions in the midst of the 1960s countercultural revolution in America, during which time there were many progressive gains made. 
But of course, Rashtuni and other concerned conservative Christians were alarmed at these developments. They interpreted them as America losing its way as the nation departed from its Christian founding, ceasing to be a Christian nation. Catherine Stewart, in that History News Network article I cited from earlier, notes that during that turbulent period, Rushduni, quote, found himself agreeing with Dabney that the Union victory was a defeat for Christian orthodoxy. In Rushduni's mind, Dabney's great adversaries, the abolitionists, were the archetypes of the anti-Christian rebels, liberals, communists, secularists, and advocates of women's rights who continued to wreak havoc on the modern world. She concludes by saying, as Rushduni's fellow Reconstructionist C. Greg Singer put it, pro-slavery theologians, including Dabney, Thornwell, and their contemporaries, quote, now quoting Singer, properly read abolitionism as a revolt against the biblical conception of society and a revolt against divine sovereignty in human affairs, end quote. Rushduni himself concluded, now quoting Rushduni, abolitionist leaders showed more hate than love on the whole. The defeat of the Orthodox side in the Civil War, Rushduni asserted, paved the way for the rise of an unorthodox social gospel, end quote. We can see that from Wilson's point of view, as a theonomist in the line of Reconstructionists like Rushduni, that he has more than embraced elements of the theological war thesis. For example, the goal of his Christ Church in Moscow, according to their own website, is to Christianize the town, which betrays his theonomist and post-millennialist roots. He claims that it's not really about slavery, but more about the way in which the Civil War ended. The godly South's defeat led to the introduction of an increasingly secularized government that ultimately allowed such evils as legalized abortion, same-sex marriage, and increased women's rights, toss in a defense of a literalistic reading of the Bible, which condones slavery, and the circle is complete. But where does all this leave us today? I discovered one interesting perspective in a Brill Academic Journal article on so-called Christian patriots. Author Stephen Rays points out that the danger in the line of argumentation begun by clergy and theologians in the pre-war South and continued on for years afterwards is this. It's a form of proto-fascism. He comments, quote, When the Confederate States of America seceded from the United States, they aimed to preserve the chattel slavery they believed was guaranteed in the Constitution. Most Confederates stylized themselves as the true torchbearers of the American ideals of freedom and liberty. However, amongst these voices were those who sought a radical break with the past. A group of intellectuals aimed to go beyond modernizing slavery to embrace an alternative vision of modernity. Those were the Southern proto-fascists whose writings heralded the darker and less free world of the 20th century. In the antebellum South, most of these individuals were also Christians who reconciled their faith in progress and modernity with Christianity. This confluence between proto-fascist and theological visions for the future has long been overlooked in the historiography, end quote. So what's the legacy of Doug Wilson's work on Southern slavery? Simply this, if theonomists like Wilson have their way, then they'll continue to do away with the hard-won progressive gains like same-sex marriage and women's rights that the Christian right has already been successful in winning one element of Doug Wilson's big three on the culture war list. They overturned Roe versus Wade. That proves this to be the case. Essentially, what's happening is that a minority is overruling the majority. Their strategy is to use democratic means to usher in anti-democratic, undemocratic legislation, forcing their particular narrow and sectarian views of the Bible on all Americans. 
We've already seen that having, quote, won the abortion fight, they're not resting on their laurels. Next on the chopping block is a rolling back of gay marriage and LGBTQ rights. We've already heard of attacks on the trans community, something that Donald Trump has bleated about on his presidential campaign trail. Additionally, he's once again positioning himself as the champion of religious liberties and attacking other conservative hot-button issues, as pointed out by journalist Joe Middleton in a March 2023 Independent article. He notes that, quote, former U.S. President Donald Trump has vowed to crack down on transgender insanity and pledged to, quote, now quoting Trump, revoke every Biden policy promoting the disfigurement of our youth. And he goes on to point out that at the first rally of his 2024 presidential campaign on Saturday in Waco, Texas, Trump doubled down on a vow he made last month to revoke his successor's policies on gender-affirming care for transgender children. Trump said that he would, quote, keep men out of women's sports if re-elected president after he last year misgendered transgender athlete Leah Thomas. The former president said that he would also support and, quote, fight for parents' rights, including universal school choice. He added, quote, I will immediately sign an executive order to cut federal funding for any school pushing critical race theory, transgender insanity, and other racial, sexual, or political content on our children, end quote. And he concludes the point by saying Trump's comments came after a slew of state-level bills targeting health care for transgender youth across the United States, end quote. And guess who's behind that slew of state-level bills aimed at denying health care for transgender teens? Surprise, surprise, they're fueled by influential conservative Christian legal groups together with so-called parental rights campaign groups, both of which, it may come as no surprise, are currently dominating Republican political campaigns. Finally, when it comes to women's rights, we already know Doug Wilson's track record. Just like Dabney and Rush Dooney advocated, he's a staunch patriarchalist who advocates that women should joyfully submit to their husbands and that only men should be pastors and leaders in church. As we've already seen, this view lines up neatly with much of the Southern antebellum slave-owning patriarchal society. The fact that in both books, Southern Slavery as it was in Black and Tan, Wilson points the finger of blame at America's secular government should give us all cause for concern. What's the answer then in the final analysis? This is what I think it all boils down to. Do you really want to live in a theocracy? Do you want biblical law to become the laws of the land? Are you happy watching society's progressive gains get chipped away, rolled back, and ultimately criminalized? This is already happening in America today. We're seeing it clearly and the outlawing of abortions in several states. It didn't matter that the majority of Americans supported a woman's rights to have an abortion. They disapproved the majority of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade. Trump's unprecedented appointment of three conservative Supreme Court justices opened the door to the Christian rights win, which is what they'd been working toward for literally decades. But it's not just about overturning the law. They're positively draconian. For example, it's now a criminal offense in states like Texas to engage in any of the following actions for a woman to have an abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected, and that's long before most women even know they're pregnant, or for someone like an abortion doctor to assist her in having an abortion. And it even goes so far as to include anyone who might drive her to another state where abortions are still legal. Worse still, it embraces a sort of vigilante justice whereby any citizen can file a civil lawsuit against anyone who provides for or facilitates an abortion. 
Violations of the law can bring about life imprisonment, as well as the Attorney General seeking civil penalties of up to $100,000, plus attorney's fees, of course. And worse yet, the law makes no exceptions for an abortion in the case of rape or incest. But if men like Doug Wilson have their way, this and more will all be coming soon to a country near you. All we need to do now is to make homosexuality illegal, reinstitute chattel slavery and a whole white patriarchal system, and all the remaining pieces will fall into place. Thanks for coming along with me on this very long journey looking at Southern slavery as it was, the theological war thesis, Doug Wilson's role in the whole thing. I hope you've been tracking with all I've been talking about. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, you can do so. Find me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can send me a DM there or just follow me there. You can send me an email through the public MindShift Podcast Facebook page. So there is a number of ways to get a hold of me and let me know what you think about this episode or really any other one. So thanks again for hanging with me on this long episode. We'll see you again on the next episode right here on MindShift Podcast.